Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Hi, this is Bob, 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 v, 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 Vila. And now, it's time for the show, This Old Dungeon. The show where grognards go to get their grog on. Between the two of us, we're going to get a lot of stuff done. We're going to kick some ass. We're going to be awesome. Featuring your hosts. Hi, this is Bill Barsh. I am the managing director of Paysetter Games and Simulations. Somebody here call a carpenter? Hi, this is Edwin. I'm a longtime cast member of Skype of Cthulhu, and I am the 5e editor for Frog God Games. The truth is, I can always find games, though. This is Lou Alu. I could charitably call myself a game designer and game publisher, but definitely a veteran role player of 35 plus years. We work on it the rest of the night, we get it together. We can do this, right? There's no way in hell we can do it. Hello listeners, we have got a great episode of This Old Dungeon for you tonight. We're going to be talking about one of my favorite games, and uh, we have with us... Uh, a, a guy that, man, uh, when I look at his credentials and I look at some of the uh, the stuff his company has put out, he is he is just uh, keeping alive uh, the old school feel in the gaming world and has been doing that for a very long time. And so uh, I'd like to introduce uh, Bill Barsh. Bill, how are you doing tonight? I am doing great. Thanks for having me. And then also returning for us tonight, we have Edwin. Uh, everyone, I was, oh man, I would tell you, I was shocked. Everyone from our last podcast said that they'd be, they'd be willing to come back and do it again. And then when I told them that, uh, well, what do you know about the chill game system? Uh, nobody knew anything, but Edwin's like, hey man, I will uh, go look up Crypt World, which is a retro clone of it. And so he's going to come in tonight with us and uh, be talking about that. Edwin, how are you? I'm doing great. Thank you. Thanks for having me back. Oh, it's my pleasure, man. What's everybody been doing lately? Chirp, chirp, chirp. <laughs> uh, yeah, we doing, doing. Come on, <laughs> go for it, Bill. All right, I'll I'll jump in. Uh, actually, I've been very tied up with. Uh, uh, we've got a couple of Kickstarters that are um, uh, shipping in the next couple of weeks here. Uh, another one that's uh, in progress, so that's been taking up most of my gaming time. So I haven't had a chance to do much of any gaming uh, this past week. Actually, last few weeks. Um, but uh, so it's mostly just a lot of production work over here at Paysetter, um, and I'm getting around a lot. So another one actually. So uh, putting some final touches on that. What stage of a project is most exciting to you? Uh, the design. Yeah. Uh, you know, um, a, a lot of our projects. I, I'm, you know, I don't know if I'm like a lot of other designers. I've, I've been doing this a, a long time. And uh, I, I have idea books or journals, and I write ideas down, and I've, I've just got way too many that I'll probably ever do. But, uh, you know, once we, we kind of peg down what we're going to do next and, and moving into the design of it, although I'm always, I'm always putzing. I'm one of those people that, uh, <laughs> um, you know, and I, I'm kind of all over the place, too. I'm, uh, I, I'm, I'm the opposite of OCD. So I, uh, I, I tend to work on a whole bunch of projects uh, almost all at the same time until, we, you know, it comes down to uh, push comes to shove and I got to really move on one. 
But uh, I, you know, the initial design and coming up with, uh, you know, just the, the the whole concept, and then uh, the 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 outline of, of the project is is my favorite part, and kind of watching it all come together. I I really enjoy producing uh, supplements and adventure modules and that kind of thing for for our old school games. It's uh it's been a passion of mine for a very very long time. I mean I I've been doing it since I was like 18, so <laughs> wow. and I'm a lot lot older than that now. So uh, <laughs> I still enjoy it. Wow, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I'm a million steps behind you guys. I'm a little tiny game publisher. I've got you know one product out with a couple supplement adventures for it, and um, this year recently I took on two projects that I'm trying to kind of push out at the same time. And I, man, I can't. I don't know how you guys do it. You know, have more than one project going. It's it's like you know being put inside a blender. You know, um, that's amazing. Having more than one person helps, definitely. I've got a lot of help. Yeah, we, <laughs> yeah. We've really expanded Pace Setter in the last uh, a bunch of years. I mean, I used to be kind of a one-man show when I first started just Pace Setter games back uh, 14 years ago now. Um, I was kind of the one-man band. Had a little bit of, you know, I had artists that do my, that kind of work and cartographers and that kind of thing. But as far as all the rest, I did it all. I did all the, the layout design. I've got a background in publishing, so that helped a lot. Um, but now we have, we've got, my son came on about five years ago, uh, Ben, mm-hmm. who a lot of people know him more than they know me, honestly. Uh, <laughs> I, but, uh, I hear him he, called uh, the, uh, the, the good hair of the RPG world. <laughs> he is. He's, uh, he's all over YouTube and TikTok <laughs> and all that stuff. And, uh, recently, uh, he's now doing, um, basically, uh, he's a community manager for Nord Games now. Uh, it's a very large company. Um, they do mostly 5e stuff, but, uh, he, uh, he does, he's still pace our guy but uh you know when he came on he really upped our game and we've got editors more editors now we got i mean real deal editors um uh layout designer Susie mosby who you might have heard of she does a lot of work for frog god um uh, more artists uh you know all that kind of stuff more cartographers uh, the whole nine yards so we've got a whole production staff behind us now um which really really helps but you know we're also doing you know large projects so uh, there's no way you could do it uh um on a small scale unless you've got a lot a lot of time which i still (laughs) don't i still have a real life job i i uh it's coming to an end very quickly thank god i'm about to retire but uh i'm still putting in anywhere between 50 to 60 hours a week um in my real life job so having been around is is a miracle for me um but uh so I, I know the difficulties of, of doing it by yourself because most of us do not do this for a living. So, uh, so I, you know, there's no such thing. You, you said you're just small. You know, you, you're just getting started and you're smaller and all that. There's no such thing. There's, there's uh, people who don't design games and there's people who do design games. So <laughs> once you're in the club, you're in the club. So it doesn't matter what size you are. I appreciate that. Uh, Edwin, what have you been up to? Well, it's funny, uh, the question that you asked Bill about what he enjoys most. We, um, at Frog God, we started, we, we sort of were asking ourselves, you know, why are we doing this? And of course, there's lots of any sort of company that is just business, right? I mean, mm-hmm. any, you always have to deal with revenue and whatever and people and management and all that kind of stuff. And we said, you know, and we all get to do that in our in our day-to-day jobs also. <laughs> and so we said, you know, what do we really like about, you know, being in a gaming company? I was like, well, it's it's really about adventures and, you know, making them. And so we started a uh, reading club. I don't know, a book club. 
anyway, we're uh, sort of the opportunity for us to read our own adventures at various stages of creation and brainstorm on them and think about what's going on and, and you know, and play, you know, play uh, with ideas. And that really has been a hoot. Is this uh, um, is this kind of like a round robin kind of thing where like one guy's adventure gets put to a different author and, and their adventure goes to somebody else and so you're not like reading your own stuff but but you know somebody else's No, it's a it's a round table of of the frogs uh, m- most of I don't know if most many of our authors are, are external mm-hmm. um, so it's a round table of the frogs looking at you know, pitches and drafts and um, yeah various you know various drafts of the adventures and sort of but bring bringing our own uh, energies and thoughts to them to see if we can uh, make them tie to other adventures we publish, tie into the world, tie uh, and just generally pump them up. Um, and then also it's a nice chance for us to brainstorm about what, you know, my idea about the best art that's going to go with this is going to be that one scene where the goblins were stealing the <laughs> skull from, you know, or whatever. So uh-huh. we can think about art, we can think about cartography, we can also do a little bit, sort of the, the not the proofreading editor, but the, the over, you know, the, the sort of big picture editing mm-hmm. of, you know, is this a good story? Is this a fun story? But it's allowing us all to do that as sort of a, a group and talk to each other and learn from each other and so, uh, feed off each other it, a little bit. I don't mean to, like, pick into this if it's something that's like, you know, you know, company secret or whatever, or, or not something that you, you you should be talking about or whatever. But but who gets to sit at that table? Like, are, are we talking about like, um, you know, marketing people? And I mean, like like who's there and who's not there, kind of thing. Like, at what level do you get to sit at the table and, and give your ideas for it? Um, that's a good question, um, and it's not a secret, but I don't actually know the answer. Um, we have, I mean, it's mostly the frog god partners um and then some invited folk that are part of the longtime frog god staff okay uh so like our art director um and so there's sort of this this mix of uh of people i think it's it's mostly at this point people who are excited and have something to add yeah, who do we think is going to show up and, and, and punch up uh, the stories? So that has been, that's, and that's, it's brand new. We're still, we're still sort of feeling out exactly what, what it, what works and how it works and how to make it the most useful and fun part of our time. Um, so, but that's been pretty exciting. Uh, Sounds like also, Laser trying to make people do more work other than him. <laughs> it's definitely Glazer trying to get out of doing his job and having it farmed out to the rest of us, 100%. Ooh, gold um, out. Like everything team. else. And he didn't show up for the last one, so. <laughs> you know. um, and then I did get I a little Zach gaming a long in. Time, so I can, I can have fun with Zach. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. When he first <laughs> publishing, he, uh, um, we talked a lot when he was working on his projects. And, the, the Whisper and Venom days, is that what we're yeah, looking at? Yeah, Whisper and Venom, and he said, I'm doing a box set. And I said, Zach, get out of your ever-loving <laughs> mind. I just you were right. It about killed me. Um, but uh, he killed, you know, he uh, he knocked it out of the park. Whisper and Venom is an awesome product. Yeah. But, yeah, Zach and I go back a long time. <laughs> yeah, he was mining 
mining the expert wisdom. Yeah, got to, yeah. <laughs> More like finding out, hey, what, what did you screw up first so I don't do it second? <laughs> well, he, he was mining the expert wisdom, and he ignored it because the expert wisdom was don't do a box set. You know, I actually told – everyone told not to. I told them to do it. Uh, you know, Good. Well, you were right. I, uh, I, you know, you, I, I got into the kind of the OSR publishing. I, I wasn't one of the first people to do it. I'm never going to say it, but I was real early on into doing it. And uh, and until you decide that you're actually going to do it, you know, it's back then, especially on your own. Now everyone and their brother with a laptop is putting stuff out, mm-hmm. um, which is cool. It's all cool. I'm, I'm, I'm a fan of everything. So – but uh, but back then, you know, it was the fear of of the unknown because, you know, even I mean, desktop publishing had been around forever, but getting things actually produced and being able to afford to uh-huh. produce them, you know, that was before Pod. I I never I, to this day we haven't produced a Pod product at Paysetter. Huh. We print everything ahead of time at a, at an actual printer. Um, so you know, it's it was scary, and but I could just see, you know, when I talking to Zach, and it was. I'm sure it was at a North Texas RPG con back then. I think when him and I first sat down to talk about it, um, you know, I could just see how excited he was about doing it. And it was like, you know, I'm, it, we laugh about saying, Hey, don't do a box set. Don't do a box set. You know what? We've done four or five of them now at Paysetter, and I love them. I love doing box sets. That's, I'm not going to lie. It's a pain in the rear, <laughs> but um, because now you've got a lot more, there's just the goalposts are always moving on you when you do a box set, but uh, but you gotta you do need to what uh, what Edwin was saying that you need to mine people for information because there there's a lot to know there's a lot to, and you might as well learn it from the guys who've already done it and I know most OSR publishers are more than willing to talk to anyone who wants who wants uh, help with doing something I, I don't think any of us uh, have too many trade secrets honestly. <laughs> yeah, man, I gotta say, uh, everyone I've talked to has been so welcoming, uh, and, and that's just across the board. I've never ran into anyone from, uh, you know, the old TSR crew to, to you know, people like yourself that are out doing doing it now. Everyone's been like, oh yeah, what, what you doing? You know, oh here's some su- suggestions, or here's what I would do, and uh, it's just great. I mean, it just RPG as a community, uh, it's very rare to run into anyone that's that's not going to sit there and give you the time of day. No, because people people who have done it realize how hard it is to do it. Um, especially if they've done it successfully. And, uh, you know, it's uh, OSR is a community. I know, like, Eric Tenkar, it's his favorite thing to say, you know, we're a community more than anything. And, and I've always believed that 100%. So um, I know that I can help somebody along. I'm going to help somebody along. And there's been there's been a few um, that we've talked to and, and, and nurtured along and brought along, and, and it's fantastic. And I take no credit whatsoever for anything anyone else has ever done. <laughs> I'm not going to be that guy. But, um it's uh, it's great to see people do something and be successful at it um, because it's not easy to be successful in in game publishing. There's a as awesome as it is to have all this material out here now and all these different people doing different things. Um, it's a you know it's it's still you know like OSR in particular is a very small swimming pool, right? Mm-hmm. So um, to be successful and by successful I mean not lose your butt when you publish. <laughs> Um, cause you're, you're just not going to make any kind of big money in OSR stuff, um, at all. Um, is it's awesome. It's awesome. And you don't want people to fail cause you want, you know, I, I'm not that kind of guy. I'm, I'm, I'm always the half glasses, half full person anyway. So, 
Um, but it, it's it's great to see it. It's absolutely great to see it because you never know what somebody's going to come up with. And, and I love reading stuff anyway. So, and I know that you know all the guys over Frog God are fantastic to talk to. I mean, I, I don't bill forever, and obviously Zach a long time. Um, I don't know everyone at Frog God that well, but I know most of them pretty well. What have you been up to, Lou? Uh, so uh, I've uh, just recently kind of passed the GMing reins over to a buddy of mine. Uh, we normally have a Sunday game, uh, just a group that's been together here now for a couple years out of groups. It kind of is Frankenstein together out of people I've known from other groups. And uh, I've been game master for a real long time, but like I said, I got these two projects I'm working on. And uh, so I was like, guys, guys, please, man, I love you all. You know this, but I can't do this. I need to play for a while. I need someone else to run. So a good buddy of mine stepped up, and so uh, we started playing the uh, uh, Goodman Games Lankmar uh, stuff, and that's been nice. pretty fun. Nice, yeah. So uh, how does it feel? Oh, to, uh, mercy. To, to be able to just, like, you know, hear that alarm go off five minutes before game time and get on Zoom and not have right. any uh, responsibilities. <laughs> oh, it's living a dream, brother. Oh, man. But, that's uh, awesome. That yeah. is great. But and I've I've been able to get a lot of stuff done too, which has been nice. I've I've been trying to put together these maps for this uh, Mutant Crawl Classics uh, third party thing I'm trying to do, and um, I've said this on some of my posts on Facebook. But uh, I, I I'm not a professional cartographer by any means, but but I enjoy it. And most people that see my maps think they're at least half decent. Uh, a lot of them don't believe that I'm the one that created them. <laughs> um, and uh, <laughs> So usually it takes me a couple weeks to churn out a map of like, you know, a haunted house, a dungeon or whatever. And um, I do them digitally, painted on the computer. And uh, that's, that's fantastic. Well, thank you. I mean, you haven't seen them, so <laughs> you might let them go. Oh, yeah, it know, took you two weeks to do that. None of the well, lines are straight. I can't draw a straight line with a ruler, okay? <laughs> so anyone who's got any artistic ability at all, I'm in awe with. And, I, and you know, I was torn when you asked that question a little bit about what's your favorite thing to do, you know, in, in the process. I love drawing maps. I draw maps all the time. I've got just – I've got maps everywhere because that's kind of how I start a lot of my projects. Yeah. I mean, that's that's my um, – you know, people ask, all you know, we do these kind of – Things like, you know, how do you get inspired to do something? I, I invariably almost tell my, you know, I'll just be sitting here doodling a map or whatever. And that's, that's for me, that's kind of what starts my path. You know, it's very rarely like, you know, I'm flipping through the monster manual or some book like that and get inspired to do something. Although th- that does happen. Mm-hmm. But most of the time it starts with a map. And it's, it's funny because um, I can't draw anything. I can't draw a stick figure. But I love drawing maps. And they're not, they're not particularly good. That's why we have to have a cartographer. Um, who has to ask me 10,000 questions when he looks at my map. But uh, <laughs> it's, it's, uh, I think it's fantastic that, you know, you have that ability because I certainly can't even – I couldn't even think about doing it on a computer. Well, thank you. Yeah, but, uh, you know, and I'm, I'm right there with you as far as design. I mean, typically, you know, once I draw the area, then I'm like there, and then I can kind of see some possibilities with where the adventure might go and what, you know, what it might include that I hadn't seen before. Or yes. if I'm if I'm out about that's the second way. If I'm out about like at a state park or something, I'll see something and be like, oh, you know, there's a story here. There's a whole game that could be set up around you know this landscape right here. Um, it, yeah, it's like it's like basically being a visual learner, right? Uh-huh. Um, my wife's in education, so I get to hear all that stuff, and that's kind of I'm like, well, you just you just described me. I, I have to see it. I you know, um, all these poor kids like doing uh, virtual. Oh yeah. <laughs> school. Oh my God, I. 
that would have been a game over for me. Uh, <laughs> had would have had to have been in a classroom to actually see things. So, but uh, yeah, it's it's you can inspire yourself right by just drawing a map. Absolutely. So and finish it up real quick. Um, so anyhow, uh, so I'm like two weeks to draw a map. I'll have this project, you know, set up to to go to layout, you know, in this this in sort of time here. But what I had not accounted for is uh, drawing science fiction stuff is so much more labor intensive because you know if you want to put a chair in a dungeon, you know what that chair is going to look like. You know, it's very easy <laughs> to draw that chair. Really, you got all sorts of reference. But then you're like, okay, I want to draw this future chair, you know. Well, you know, <laughs> you, you, you got to come up with something clever, something, you know, sci-fi, but yet it's still got to be identifiable. And then you want it to match with other technology that's in the area that you're drawing. And uh, it's just, uh, man, it's just been like crawling through glass trying to get this done. But luckily <laughs> it's, it's in the can. We're done with it. Beautiful. So, oh, so uh, we got this next segment coming up here, guys. This is our Holy Grail segment. It's a segment where we... Uh, Look on to what we're trying to find in gaming, whether that's a physical product, some long-lost uh, publication that we want to complete our compl uh, collection, or whether it's just something we want to uh, get better at as as game designers, as game masters or players. Uh, what is it we're searching for in gaming? Go and tell your master that we have been charged by God with a sacred quest. Real quest. I think last time I talked about this uh, improv mm -hmm. GMing that I've been uh, playing with. I'm still, I'm, so I'm not a, uh, although I do have my wall of gaming stuff, of course, I don't, I'm not in any way a collector. So <laughs> I, I don't have any, like, there's nothing, yeah, nothing physical You're that I'm a really lucky man. seeking. Oh, I have a very happy very wife. In that regard. <laughs> Well, you know what? Let's see. I guess I can't even say. I was gonna say once you have too many dice, then you're kind of done. But of course, <laughs> then the answer is there's no such thing. Yeah, what is that? Um, <laughs> but, um, but I've, I've been. I'm just. I'm still playing with that. I'm still working on that. And I'm still trying to to uh, let go a little bit more each each game, each session, um, and you know, show up with a little bit less stapled down and. Be, get a little more comfortable with with being uh, with making it up as I go, and that's been that's still fun. I'm still enjoying that exercise, and it hasn't crashed yet. So I think that's the that's the important piece. I did actually did more prep uh, than I had meant to for the last session, uh, but it ended up going really well. So maybe <laughs> maybe I don't know. So, so here's the litmus test. Uh, uh, out of all that prep you did, what what percent would you say actually made it to the table? So. It was like a hundred percent for this particular one because this one was a. Uh, I basically knew that we were in for a, a combat. You know, we left at the cliffhanger. They're they're right at the. Uh, they're they're trying to rest just outside a secret door, and they were hearing, uh, somebody running up the stairs. And when I told them that, I didn't know who was running <laughs> up the stairs. But you know, by the next week, I did. Um, but I. Because one of the other things, maybe maybe this is a different grail. One of the other things I've been working on and thinking about is is these ideas of a combat that has a lot of things going on. So maybe there's a ticking clock, or you know, so you have to do this while the fight's going on mm -hmm. um, to try to make things a little more than just stand and bash the opponent. So kind of like a and, like we're talking about a layered sort of thing, like in a Star Wars movie where you got the the rebels on the planet and the ships out in space, and it's all kind of come into one. 
one point of uh, either success or failure? Or, or no, no, well, okay. so this this particular one, for example, they'd been uh, there was a statue that was stolen, and they were supposed to find it because the the priest needs it in order to bless the whatever. Who cares about all that? <laughs> but there was this statue that had been stolen along with some other silver stuff, and so as they get into the bad guy's lair, uh, they see the statue on the chain hoist moving towards the furnace where it's going uh, to get melted down. So it's this idea like that, cooker, well, you can fight the bad guys, or you can rescue the statue, or you can figure out how to do both at once. And oh, by the way, there's also this wizard who's obviously creating something nefarious with the molten silver, so you might want to stop him from doing his thing, too. Um, and that was... So that, and that so it worked out, but I spent a lot of time trying to you know come up with those pieces of the puzzle to make for a an interesting fight for you know a low level party. Um, that was that was pretty good though. I think it it came out well. They didn't they didn't achieve all the goals, but they definitely had to make choices. And they uh, at the end of the session they were alive, but a couple of them unconscious, and uh, they did lose the statue though, but they <laughs> did not lose. The uh, the guy who <laughs> the paladin who had grappled the statue to keep it from going into the furnace uh, had his uh, I don't know how old was he four year old three year old I don't remember his young son come over and and roll the dice for that last saving throw to see if he ended up uh, stuck in the molten metal with the fa- with the uh, statue or if he was able to break free that, like reflex so that was kind of exciting huh. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Excellent. That, that sounds exciting to me, man. I'd buy that one. It's pretty cool. That was good. Well, we may sell it someday. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> sounds good to me. How about you, Bill? You got anything you're looking for? Are you a collector of uh, prizes? I'm a collector, so I, I'm one of those uh, AKM guys, too. So I've, <laughs> I've been doing this for a very long time. I, I mean, I, 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 I bought D&D stuff back in the you know, late 70s. I bought it and played it but i kind of collected it too so i was kind of one of those people who tried to keep it in really nice condition mm-hmm. so i'm i'm fortunate that i was collecting but not not the way i, I think people you know you look at it today mm-hmm. obviously it's it's insane um you're not like alex the, the or anything prices, like that yeah the prices are gone I mean, if i if, if i wanted to be a collector and, and pick up everything i have um I, it'd be virtually impossible at this point i mean i it, it'd be tough i know that but uh um, so I, I'm fortunate. I've got, I pretty much got everything for that TSR did for all the way through first edition AD and D. I've got my collection is about 98, 97% wow. for that. Um, you know, that's OD and D, BX D and D, or basic D and D, all the different variants of that AD and D, and then a, a most most TSR games. That they produce. I'm not big into their ephemera stuff, like belt buckles and all that. <laughs> that, that. That was never my thing. But the, the fortunate part is I was collecting it kind of as this stuff came out. So um, I was also very fortunate to be in Michigan and be a part of. Uh, back in the day, we used to have Michigan and WinterCon here in in Michigan. There were two big conventions. They were probably third, fourth, fifth largest conventions in the country back in the day. Uh, TSR would basically go to Gen Con, Origins, and our conventions. Oh, wow. And uh, those conventions started back in the early 70s. So they've, they've been around. And uh, so I was actually around when, when TSR was running their tournaments here. And I have copies of, like, you know, the Ghost Tower of Inverness, 
uh, Lost Caverns, that kind of thing. I, I have actually tournament copies of those. That's pretty um, awesome. Well, and it, what's really awesome is I bought them for like five bucks <laughs> because that's that's what they cost back then. So, you know, I'm a collector kind of by accident in a way. You know, I mean, I still do collect. So, like, I'm I'm big into a lot of them. I'm big into SPI games. I'm big into Task Force. I, I mean, I worked for them for a while. Um, Starfleet Battles was huge with my gaming group. Um, and I've got pretty much everything for Starfleet Battles up to a cert, up to a way back in the 90s. I've been out of it forever. But I'm missing a few captain's logs, so that's kind of what I'm I'm searching out now. And a couple of them are actually really hard to find in decent condition. I'm not a guy who has to have everything in the shrink, but I prefer it to be really, really nice. Mm-hmm. Well, um, nowadays you're going to pay through the nose for it no matter what. So yeah, You're going to pay through the nose. I mean, like I said, I, I can't even imagine, you know, I mean, people are buying. I mean, I, I can tell you right now, I... My I I've got a second print brown box um, uh, D and D, and I think I was I wasn't playing D and D when that came out. I was after that. I didn't start till around seventy seven. So I I started with a white box in the home set, but uh, so I I bought a brown box years later, and I paid I paid four or five hundred bucks for it, which was wow. a shit ton of money back then. Uh-huh, but now. Uh, <laughs> But you, I mean, yeah. Now you're gonna pay, you're gonna pay fifteen, twenty grand for one. So it's, uh, it's, it's crazy where, where these numbers have gone. But it's also kind of amazing too for the hobby. Mm-hmm. Um, I know it sucks if you want to collect stuff, but uh, I mean, a crappy copy of B1 is gonna run you twenty five, thirty bucks. They back, you know, ten years ago they couldn't give them away for a dollar. Um, or not B1, sort of a B2 especially. Uh-huh. Not that it's not, it's, it's one of the greatest modules ever, but they printed 80 billion of them. <laughs> yeah, it's so, the most printed uh, RPG product yep. of all, I think. Yeah. It, it, yeah, it has to be. I mean, I remember those going on eBay. You would get them with a lot of stuff, and people would just throw them away because they, you couldn't even sell them on eBay for even two bucks. Yeah. It's, uh, I wonder. But that, that, that world has changed. Yeah. I, I wonder about sometimes, like, you look at the comic book industry and how, like, really it was kind of in the 80s then into the 90s that people really started taking that that whole I don't know genre of media seriously and it was also largely because we started looking at how much some of those old comics were worth I wonder if that's kind of part I mean obviously you know there's a whole lot of other factors going on but I wonder if that's part I, of the I think hype for... yes the, the, the Marvel movies and everything else but I think comics is kind of a lot of it's almost the same way right mm-hmm. because I collected comics when I was a kid in the 70s and, and maybe even up into the early 80s. I got a bunch of long boxes full of them because um, I can't throw anything out. My wife yells at me, but um, <laughs> it is what it is. But, uh, you know, I think it, it, there was a, a period of time and must have been, I don't know, 80s, early 90s, where they weren't worth, you know, the comic books weren't worth anything, yeah. right? I mean, you, you could have a, a Amazing Spider-Man from the, the late 60s or early 70s. They were worth nothing. I mean, you Nobody wanted them, and now I, I really haven't looked into it much, but I think they've had also comic books have had a huge resurgence. It's sure, yeah, in value, and it's, I'm glad I didn't throw all my stuff out. I should actually go through it at some point, but um, but but certainly old gaming material, and it's not just restricted to obviously to like um, I don't know. I'm getting way off the subject no, here. No, but this it's is not just, just the nature of this program. We just kind of, you know, <laughs> wander around, have a I'm good time, and if, yeah, if other people enjoy it, fine. If not, at least we had fun, you know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but it's it's not just restricted to like you know old TSR stuff. I mean, you got West End Games, obviously original pace setter stuff mm-hmm. goes for good money. I mean, it, it's it's really fascinating 
you know, old Chaosium stuff, especially early Call of Cthulhu. Um, it's uh, it's pretty much uh, lifted all boats. You know, that tide certainly has done that. Um, Absolutely. It's it's fascinating where that's gone. So uh, talking about going off on tangents, you mentioned uh, Starfleet Battles, and uh, I have not played that. Uh, I remember people playing. I just I was never big into the Star Trek, and uh, it just never took to me. But I've heard other people tell me that uh, that is still probably one of the best sci-fi space battle uh, rule sets that you can get. Would you? Agree? I'll, I'll yes, one thousand percent. We played the hell out of it back in the day. Um, I mean, literally for years, we played tons of Starfleet battles. Um, then I got involved with Task Force actually through that. Um, but it's it's still around today. They're still playing it, which makes it probably one of the longest running board tactical games that are. It's still in production, yeah. right? I mean, it's been production since. Because they got that like sweet license where it was, you know, they sit they, back. They kill yeah. Yes. So they, there's a lot of stuff they can't do, but the stuff they can do. And, you know, the lot of well, – it's funny what you said about the Star, not being in Star Trek. I never was either, and I still not really. I mean, I enjoy some of the movies and stuff, whatever. But, you know, Starfleet Battles, it's it, it, it's funny um, when you talk to people who have never played because it's the – you look at it and it's like, oh, it's a Star Trek game. That game's got virtually nothing to do with Star oh, Trek really? other than the ships. <laughs> oh, nothing. Nothing at all. You know, um, other than the ships look like the ships that were in the, you know, the OG series and stuff like that. Other than that, there's no – you don't talk Star Trek at all. In fact, most people who play Starfleet Battles are not Trekkies in any way, shape, or form. Um, it is it is a pure tactical war game. Wow, mine's um, blown here. It's Battletech. Battletech with spaceships. Okay. Oh, I'm on board. And <laughs> I love me some Battletech. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and if you like Battletech, you'd like Starfleet. All Starfleet takes longer, and it's way more complex. <laughs> absolutely honest with you. But that game started as a as a little pocket game. You know, Task Force used to we used to put out those. Those pocket games, that's how Starfleet Battle started, and it grew into what it is today. So it's, it's actually an amazing story. It's got a great history. But, um, but yeah, it's, as far as I know, it's the longest-running tactical war game in existence today, uh, continuous. Wow. It still has a huge following. I haven't played in 20 years, but uh, it still has a huge, huge following. Yeah, I've got all my Battletech stuff up in boxes in the garage, and my... my... Youngest child's nine, so it's getting almost that time when I get to do the unboxing oh, yeah. and get them out again, you know. For so, sure, and they have like start, you know, they they put a new starter set out for that a few yeah, years Catalyst, ago. Yeah, Catalyst, that looks beautiful, doesn't it? It, it is. I yep, I picked that up. I I I play BattleTech exactly once a year at North Texas RPG Con, and we we play in the the this the Friday night game, which is you know over twenty one outrageous <laughs> battle, but. Uh, <laughs> It's uh, it's I love that game. It's just an absolute blast. And the people, the people who run it, and it's almost always the same group of about ten of us that play. And and it's uh, it's just loads of fun. Yeah, I've been able to get into the Saturday night game and kind of the, the farm league for the Friday night game, I guess you could call it. But uh, uh, it's <laughs> it's been pretty fun. Gary will show up there and hang out with us and do it. Yeah. So. Yeah. All right. Yeah. As, as far as I'm going, uh, you know, I, I think the last episode I was looking for a way to do. Uh, non-sequential module writing where I'm working with my uh, Dare Luck Club adventure. I'm looking for a like an adventure where the kids get a jump time as they try to solve this issue that these uh, alien invaders are causing. And I'm still kind of hashing it out, but some of the advice you guys gave me last time uh, has gone a long way as to kind of solving that problem. So uh, I'm, I'm still still with that. That's my, my holy grail. Once I finally get that 
that adventure uh, set in set in ink, then uh, I'll be a happy man. So yeah, I'll have a word of wisdom: you never finish writing an adventure, even when you're finished. Oh yeah, the old uh, artists just abandon their <laughs> art, kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. that's never finished. Books out, 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 and in the wild, and you still think you're like, oh, well, you know, I could always rewrite this. <laughs> well, the nice thing is, you, is with these adventures, is then when you run them, you get the chance to rewrite it. Mm-hmm. Yes. Time. Yeah. Absolutely. So, yeah. It's one of the something I like about about this this medium is you get to there's not only are you not done, but it's not done because. Yeah, you're going to rerun it, and other people are going to run it, and who knows what will happen to it. It's the ongoing story, right? And it's never uh, never the same twice. Yeah. We just got a letter. We just got a letter. We just got a letter. Wonder who it's from. My opinion is letter writer is a total wacko. All right. Well, we'll move on to our next segment then. Uh, we got our letters from the Homeowners Association here. And uh, we just got one letter to deal with tonight. There, there was one latecomer, but uh, I think I'm going to push it off to the next episode because uh, I think it'll fit better with uh, that episode's theme that's coming up here. So uh, I think this uh, this is the second time uh, we've got uh, Lone DM writing in. Well, he said, I don't know if that's you know like a macho kind of thing or if it's supposed to make me sad, you know. <laughs> All of the, uh, anyhow, um, he or she writes... So glad to hear you all again. Hope Briggy and Thomas are doing okay and looking forward to them rejoining the show when they can. I recently ran a game of 5e where there was an epic battle, but I couldn't pull it off. The whole event just fizzled down to just some rolling of dice and reduction of army ratings with the players randomly slaughtering footmen who were way outclassed by them. This was so frustrating. Have you ever had a dud RPG event like this? What is your most frustrating or disappointing moment of game mastering? Look forward to your next episode and tell all those new hosts they did swell. Hopefully they will be back again and they were terrific hosts in their own rights. Game on, the lone DM. So, yeah, I... Can we just lie and say no? Of course not. <laughs> <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> game failure. Well, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I feel like anyone who does any form of performance or entertainment or, I mean, of course, <laughs> I mean, there's so many things that have to come together for for a good game session and they come together in different amounts. And if you play enough every once in a while, they just don't make it all to the table that day. <laughs> and I mean some of it I think really is just random you know somebody had a bad day at work and somebody else is distracted because they had an argument and they're whatever and uh, somebody else has a headache you know and it just all these things don't quite add up and suddenly mm. but well you know and, and all of us as designers and writers and, and, and that kind of thing and even those of us who just who just do this for fun with our, our, our weekly D&D group you know, we write stuff as a GM, and you write it all out, and you know that that adage goes has gone on forever. You you, you plan for this, and the players all do instead of you know, do that. You know they're going to do, <laughs> yeah. and all of a sudden this B option shows up out of nowhere, right? For sure. And your encounter just totally falls flat, and everyone goes in the other direction. I mean that that happens to everyone, whether you're writing a, you know, yeah. writing a, an adventure module, or if you're like lone DM, you know, noted he's just playing his campaign and he had this great encounter and. 
And now I, and I do believe in 5e, my understanding, I don't play a whole lot of 5e, but I think in 5e, that potential has, in, in combat situations, the potential for that stuff to go sideways seems to be greater than it does in, in a lot of OSR systems. Because uh, really? in OSR, and I think our, the sense of balance and, and how things can get out of hand or not out of hand, you know, basically more often not out of hand, um, is a lot more even than it is in 5e. I think 5e, you have to, you have to gauge it from the top heavy end of what the party can do versus what the minimum they can do. Because more often than they're not, they're going to be in that higher range um, as far as being able to deal with enemies. So we're talking like but, steamrolling, like it's more likely they're going to yeah. blow right yeah. through in 5e. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, I, yeah. say, I feel like in uh, in the old school, you know, the if you if you have a long combat, uh, it means the characters are going to be dead. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> right. They're, they're, they're going to know, right, if, if something's going on six, seven, eight rounds or something of combat, uh, you know, the PC, you know, <laughs> Right. right yeah. they're, they're probably starting to feel the pain, right? They're feeling the burn. Um, you know, I, I'm really attuned to that because I – so I run at North Texas every year. We run the – Paysetter runs the AD&D tournament every year. We've been doing it for 11 years now, I think, 11 or 12, 12 years. So, you know, when you write tournament adventures, every every encounter has to be a real deal encounter. It, You know, there's no – you don't want to have some sort of flaw in it where it's going to unbalance one group versus another group kind of thing. And I can tell you right now, it, it I've I've – written flawed encounters multiple times and we're down there running the tournament and all of a sudden we're like, Oh, this, this, this particular encounter should have, you know, it should have ran about a half hour of game time and it took like three minutes. Ouch. And you're like, "Uh Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I screwed up. So I think we've all done it. I know I've done it. I can tell you right now, I've been doing it for 40 years. (laughs) And I, I think another, another take on it though, for lone DM is, that in some ways the DM is the worst judge of whether it went well or not. Hundred um, percent. You know, because I've definitely run things and done other forms of. I mean, I'm a, I'm a teacher, right? So I've I've taught classes even where I thought, boy, that that one sunk. And then you know, two <laughs> years later, some student will be like, boy, I remember that lecture you gave on blah blah blah. That thing changed my life. That was the best <laughs> class ever. And I'm like, really? Wow, that was a that was a real stinker. And I, I think the same thing is true with games. Like if the players are having a good time, I mean, maybe the players really enjoyed steamrolling the kobolds or whatever, because you know that's kind of fun sometimes from the player perspective, or you know whatever. Mm-hmm. So sometimes I think it is important to get their uh, input on whether it was a dud or not, as opposed to relying on your own. You know, you have this expectation of what it's going to be, and then when it's not that, you might get disappointed. Uh, but it might have actually still been a really good session of play. Mm-hmm. Well, I think you a hundred thousand percent, right? Because you you put that pressure on yourself before you even roll a dice that night. That right. you know you you feel as a DM that it's up to you to make fun for everybody else all night long, right? Because if I'm not doing my job as a DM, no one's going to have fun. That's never true, right? Mm-hmm. The guys sitting around the table are I, I call it you know. I call it player buy-in. You know, if you've got great players, they're going to buy into whatever you're trying to do, and they're going to have fun with it no matter how good or bad you might have written something out or how good or bad an encounter might be going. Yeah. So, you know, it, I think the only time it's a really bad encounter, let's say like Lonely might be kind of pushing, is where 
where nobody kind of bought in. Everyone's falling flat that night. Like, you know, like you said, they had a bad day at work, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think that's that's something that we pressure we put on ourselves all the time as, as a GM is never overthink um, or try to try to make something fun for everyone because well, most of the time it's just going to evolve into that because the game's great out on its own. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's, you know, the idea of, you know, this is a symphony and, and you're not the only uh, instrument playing and yeah, for sure. <laughs> but um, I, I've done almost this exact same thing that he was talking about. Now, granted, you know, uh, for me, it's been back, back uh, home, college, high school times, uh, tried to use the battle system and uh, didn't, didn't go how I thought it would in my mind. But, but I think that's part of the problem is in my mind, I thought, well, the fun's going to be over here and being in this big, you know, Lord of the Rings <laughs> style thing. And in the players, their minds were, no, the fun's over here. And, and I just, uh, I didn't let myself see that and, and nurture what they were going for. So, yeah. Yeah. Hey, I've got this great idea. All they have to do is go through that door. <laughs> <laughs> Might as well just nail it shut. Ain't happening. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Not only do they not go through the door, they don't even go down the hallway that the door is in. I was, I was, uh, one decision by the player characters away from having to scrap that entire combat session that I was talking about. Wow. Because uh, they they ran upstairs uh, as soon as somebody came running up the to the trap door. Like that's how they started. Like, oh well, we run up the stairs. I was like, oh well, the whole adventure is downstairs. Like, oh, what's going to happen now? <laughs> what stairs? They've disappeared. Now where are you going? <laughs> yeah. Luckily, they talked themselves into going downstairs eventually. But I was I was like, all right, do something else tonight. That's cool. <laughs> Extend our pizza break a little longer than normal. And... Tell you another place I get hung up on this kind of thing, or even today, uh, when I try to make like the ultimate bad guy and have that ultimate bad guy fight, that never works out. You know what I mean? I can never play that villain as clever and as you know uh, efficiently as what all the players are playing their characters. You know, they it's always the whip down, and you know, uh, it's. On my part, I think it's I, I, it, I get into this bad planning phase where it's like I'm looking at you know stat blocks and abilities and in numbers and thinking well if, if these are high enough then that'll be enough for a challenge and not thinking more along lines of kind of what you were doing Edwin with with setting up a scenario that the scenario is challenging not just the the one enemy or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the single monster encounter is the hardest encounter to yeah. to work into a, a lot of you know, a product or just your home game, right? Because that, that does tend to happen. You know, the greatest, greatest plans, um, it, it becomes real difficult. And again, I think, it, again, talk, in talking to my son, Ben, who does like all of, most of Pacesetter's 5e stuff, I just, I, we, I, if we do a product and it's a 5e and BX product, he, I don't, I don't do hardly any of the 5e stuff. They, they, he handles it and our editors handle it and our, our converting guys handle it. But I mean, my understanding is, it's a lot easier for that to go awry in 5e than it is to go again to go awry in earlier game systems just because the playing field was so much more level between characters and monsters back in the day than it is than it is now with 5e and i'm not knocking 5e whatsoever i think 5e is a fantastic game mm-hmm. uh i just know it's it, the, the the single monster encounter thing is a is i think steve winter was on a podcast just today i was listening to and he was saying the same thing is, is it is a huge challenge to make things in 5e 
work um, single monster encounters with, with with a party of characters than it is in older game systems. Hmm. Well, uh, I feel like in every system, it's harder to make it interesting. Mm-hmm. For sure. Because I, there's I just, you know, there's, I mean, yeah. the 5e does have a few tricks up its sleeve to help with that. But in general, like, you've got five characters or six characters or four, whatever it is, and they're all doing all their cool shit. And that's exciting. And then it's like, and then the monster attacks one of you. <laughs> <laughs> right? Or whatever. And I'm like, okay. So I, we've, I, I think the, the biggest way, and now we're going to get into nuts and bolts stuff, for, for me always has been to, to deal with that kind of thing is, is that monster has to be mysterious in some way or another. It can't be just, you know, just an ogre straight up out of the book. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to make that creature um, different than any other ogre, for example, they might have fought. Um, you, you know, this is this sounds mean, but like AD&D is a game of fear. <laughs> you, you, want your, you want your players scared all the time, and that's what it was. I mean, it's... That's certainly how the how it was written. Like if, it's certainly how like it was if you designed, read into the, right? yes. the sort of meta text in the in the DM's guide and stuff, yes. it's definitely players should not read this book. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, fear is a is a good part, and it's and I don't want to use just the word fear. It's it's that expect you know that the the not knowing and yeah, it's the, a sense of wonder and that that will make those encounters interesting against a one creature thing because you just never know what it's going to do next. So yeah. the problem is if you just got your straight up like I said a party of second or third level characters going up a straight up ogre, you know, it's just going to be a little slugfest. And if they get lucky, it's going to go down quick. Or if he gets lucky, he's going to wipe half of them out. But it's, it's pretty, it's a static thing. You know, what's going to happen for the most part, but you change that ogre around, you make him like he's really old and he can't hit the broadside of a barn anymore. So he can fight lower level characters I mean stuff like that. I think that's what you have to do with, with single monsters. You have to make that monster interesting mm-hmm. and give it something unknown and which makes the players sitting out, you know, on the other side of that screen, start scratching their head, going, "Well, what the, what's going on here? This isn't what we expect out of this guy." Um, to me, that's a tool that that I I like to use a lot. Yeah, I know a lot of people. That's one of the things they praise about uh, Dungeon Crawl Classics is the idea that every monster is unique. You really don't know what you're fighting. You know? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and that they pull, and that they do spend some time pulling some creative. Uh, effects or thing, yeah, things that they can do that aren't just aren't just hitting back. Mm-hmm. But there, mm-hmm. you know, suddenly warts appear on your on your elbows. Uh, oh, oh, what's <laughs> well, that? There, what's yeah. going to happen next? <laughs> right. Yep. For sure. All right. Well, I think it's time for the main segment. This old dungeon. All right, this week in uh, this old dungeon, uh, we are taking on the classic pace setter game of Chill. Um, So before we get too far into the the system and how it works and some of the uh, better known uh, supplements for it, I know, Bill, you, you actually have worked with pace setter before the original pace setter that is uh and now obviously you know pace setter games and uh uh, uh 
Help me out here. Simulations. Simulations. That's yeah, like strategies. No, not the, strategies. The, the name nobody remembers. <laughs> yeah. That part of the name. We leave it off almost everything all the time anyway. So, <laughs> but, but uh, that's that's our legal name. Yeah. So um, if you don't mind, um, Paysetter, the original Paysetter, has kind of an interesting origin story, and I'm sure that you're a little more steeped in it than I am. Um, so you want to kind of take us back to like you know where this began, and then also maybe jump forward and talk about you know why you decided to to, to start you know, your pace setter and, uh, you know, sure. why that moniker and all that. Yeah. And I, I don't have a whole lot of connection with the original pace setter. I just want to be a thousand percent transparent. I knew Mark Akers, uh, Steve Sullivan, a couple of the guys, I did a little bit of like, I, I barely call it editing work kind of with them back in the day. Um, it was, it, I was not a part of the staff, okay. so I'm going to be a thousand percent transparent on that. And I've, I've told everyone that for years and years and years. Um, I was very active in in the game industry time. I mostly was working with Task Force in that time. But so the original Pace Setter and it's Pace Setter Ltd. is actually the name of the company. Okay. Yep, they came about because this is delicate. And I you know and you know, I never want to offend people because I know a lot of old TSR guys are are, are close friends of mine. But this but the original Pace Setter kind of came about by a group of TSR employees and guys at TSR had contracted to do work, that kind of thing. We kind of got, um, let's use the word disillusioned with um, TSR. And uh, they created Paysetter LTD. And their first big game was Chill, which is the monster game. Um, so um, the idea, you know, they're, they, one of the reasons that I think they, they formed Paysetter was, they, one, they had a bunch of great ideas, okay? They had a great ideas for some games. But also because they that time period, you know, it's hard for a lot of us to go back and, and remember what was going on at TSR back then. But TSR was really taking itself, I don't know, maybe a little too seriously at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, things were getting crazy. This is very um, early 80s, right? We're yeah. talking like 82, 81. Is that kind of 80, what it was? I want to say Paysetter LTD was formed in 84. Uh, I know Chill, Chill is 83 is the copyright on it. Now, I don't know if that, you know, they copyrighted it before they then formed it. Yeah, then we're going to go to 80. Yeah, then we're gonna to go to eighty one, eighty two. Okay. Then I mean, I'm I'm terrible. Remembering no, that's fine. I just just kind of getting in my mind where we're at time wise. Yeah. Yeah, but that's that's where it was, and so, um, unfortunately, a lot of the original pace of the guys aren't around anymore. I mean, the only one that I I still talk to, Steve Sullivan, um, he wrote Star Ace, by the way, <laughs> FYI. Um, but and he did some other stuff, he did a lot of things actually. But um, and Steve and I talk all the time, but uh. So um, that's kind of where Pacer LTD kind of came around and, and what they're what they wanted to do, and they just wanted to make games and and bring back the fun of making games. Uh, believe me, those guys had a lot of fun making their games. <laughs> it wasn't just a job. I'm sorry if you guys hear my cat that's in the okay. background. He's decided <laughs> to be irritating. Um, but uh, anyway, uh, so they produced. Uh, a lot of great games. I mean, it's actually a ton of great games, and they, they were only around a short time. Yeah. Uh, by the by, the end of the '80s, they were gone. So, um, yeah, I think their, their was, last published work was in '86. Uh, uh, so, I mean, we're talking roughly just three years, and they had at least four, maybe five games they published uh, systems. That is five, you know, systems they published. Yeah. And and those games all used base their same basic system. Mm-hmm. So, like Hero Games had the Hero System, uh, Paysetter, their they're, their system in Chill, Time Master, Star Ace, um, and even somewhat Sandman that nobody knows about. <laughs> uh, 
is uh, it's it's basically the same thing. Um, but uh, they uh, so Chill was their monster game. I mean that was that was by monster game. I mean that was their big success. It, it was it was huge. Double and Tundra was. Nice. Uh, I'm sorry. Double and Tundra there. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, uh, it it everyone bought it. You know, it was huge. I remember when it came out. Um, I think when I first saw it, I want to say it, I want to say it was at Origins because I don't think it was a Gen Con, but everyone was sucking that game up. And it, it, it's a fantastic game to this day. It's a great game. You know, I mean, it's horror, but it's not right. Mm-hmm. It's like pulp horror almost with a, with some humor added in. So it's it doesn't have that Call of Cthulhu vibe, mm-hmm. you know, obviously, but it's. Uh, um, and you know, I don't think they ever wanted to say they were a competitor with Call of Cthulhu because that's not what they were looking to do with Chill. Um, but uh, it's compatible to some degree. But uh, they uh, they produced a lot of products. I think there's eight or nine modules for Chill. Um, and I'm sorry, I don't have it all right that's in front okay. of me right now. But uh, a couple of supplements. Uh, they actually produced miniatures for Chill, which again, nobody knows any. Nobody knows they even did that. Um, they had one box set of miniatures. It was called Things, and it used the same cover as their supplement called Things, uh, which got this werewolf on the cover and the blue background. He's kind of walking through a sewer, some that kind of thing. But uh, in a short time, they produced a lot. And then Time Master was the same thing. It was a big game, another big hit. Uh, again, seven or eight adventure modules. And like you said, they did all this in a short, short time time span. And I think uh, the, the crazy side thing about this, Jim Holloway was their yeah. was their main artist. The amount of art he produced for Paysetter in that time period is insane. You'll never see anyone produce that amount of art again in a four or five year period. He is he is uh, probably my favorite artist of all the RPG old school artists, and uh, the guy must have worked from from dust till. Uh, Dawn every single day of his life because man he is prolific, just in, prolific. I mean, absolutely prolific. And you know, I I love Jim Holloway art. He's he's not my favorite, but I loved his style because he was so unique mm-hmm. in the way he did things. You know, every piece um, told a story, and it, it was you know you knew every part of that story yes. just by looking at the piece, just by looking at the piece. And uh, he, he was fantastic. We actually, I was fortunate enough that Jim did one cover for us uh, for our the. Our re- kind of, and I don't want to see reincarnation and pace setter because that's not what we wanted to do, and I, I get that later. But I was fortunate, you know, at, at the end of his career to, to get a piece of work done by him uh, for one of our adventure modules, and uh, it was so cool. It was I was geeked out by it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have these note cards of things I want to accomplish, and um, one of them I had to take down a year ago was, was try to get a piece of art from Jim Holloway for my game. Uh, but, uh, you know, God rest his soul, man. I. Yeah. You know, pe- yeah. people people often say, "Oh, his art's not that great," but but I always, you know, in my mind, you know, he's kind of the 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 working man's artist, you know, the guy that was just pumping it out for every company out there that would hire him, and uh, and it varies, you know, some of his arts, you know, better than other pieces he's done, but uh, but there's always sure. something and, about and, it, you know. And and I think a lot of it can be traced back to the fact that that guy produced so much stuff, mm-hmm. right? So, um. Some some's gonna be better than others, exactly how how you put it. But and I know I know a lot of people out there who just don't care for his art. And I look at it, I kind of look at it. Look, he's not my favorite either. He's he he's not. I although I love some of his pieces. I absolutely I I put it on my wall. I mean, 
the campaign book cover for Chill is the guy going into the tomb, yeah. and then there's a like a werewolf hand in the background. I mean, it's, it's just an amazing piece. The colors that he used are gorgeous. Um, but you know, it's uh, when you do that much stuff, it's just gonna be that way. But to me, he's one of those iconic artists from that time period, that '80s time period. That you know, he, he's right up there with everybody else, mm-hmm. as far as I'm concerned. Because when you see his art, you're instantly transported back to 1985. Yeah. Okay, Inst- and that's the magic of his artwork to me. So um, it does it doesn't have to look good by 2021 standards, right? Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't need to do that. So if if, if we go down the, the timeline a little further, um, what what inspired you to start a game company, and what inspired you to uh, to call it Paysetter? So I, I dabbled around the edges a lot for a long time. Like I said, I, I've, I've done, I, I've been in gaming a long time off, off and on. I mean, I started when I was like 14 in 1977 um, with uh, the Metro. It's, they're called the Metro Detroit Gamers or MBG. And again, they ran those, those big conventions here in the Metro Detroit area. And they, I actually at, at helped run conventions and that kind of thing. And I actually published their, their new zine called Deck of Many Things. <laughs> They're cool. not. For... Yeah, yeah. It uh, ran 128 issues, I think. It ran for a long time. Uh, but they were, MDG and TSR were very close partners. Um, TSR used to put, uh, the Village of Hamlet came out, um, they would release, it, it's funny because TSR was really funky the way they released things, and they would always try to release things at a convention. Mm-hmm. That would be the release date. And um, so a lot of modules actually got released at MDG conventions, a lot. Uh, Village of was one of them. Um, I mean, that was, you know, it's a prolifer. That's uh, just a, a module everyone yeah, knows. Yeah, the Moat right? House, man. Everybody knows yeah, that. Yeah, everyone knows it. Been and, there, done uh, yeah. their, their, their biggest tournaments often were run at MDG conventions. So I was involved back then with that, and then I kind of got in with uh, with. My start in gaming was actually uh, war games, so Avalon Hill SPI. I role playing was kind of like my secondary thing. Believe it or believe it or not, <laughs> I run a publishing That's where my start was. So I kind of got in with Task Force Games via the route of Starfleet Battles, and um, so I did stuff with them. Let me give you my whole life story here. So here That's we go. Fine. But I, I'll cut it quick. So anyway, did that. Went to college. Joined the army. Um, did my time there, got married, got out, uh, got married, had kids, big gap of gaming, like a lot of guys my age. I'm in that late 50s, okay, so I'm, I'm going to be 57 this year. So a lot of guys my age, we played, we gamed, you know, up through college age roughly, right? Mm-hmm. And a lot of us have a gap. Yep. A lot of guys don't, but a lot of guys don't have like a 10, 12-year gap. I couldn't tell you what D20 is, for example. I have no clue. <laughs> I was totally out of gaming during that time period. I, I, you know, I bought, I think, a D&D 3.0 or 3.5 book at one point or another. Never played it. Um, I didn't get back in until about 15 years ago now. And uh, that was through um, kind of like joined, I joined the AKM forum back then. And I, I, I kind of got involved with the, the North Texas crowd, even though I'm in Michigan. I've been to every one of the North Texas RPG cons. Um, and uh, it's, uh, you know... It, it kind of at some. I've always wanted to produce stuff, right? Mm-hmm. So, on my own. So I created Paysetter, mainly because Paysetter no longer existed, and I loved what they stood for. And that's kind of I'm going to go back to what I said. They, they 
they created great products and they put a lot into their products, but they they never took themselves so seriously that um, anything was kind of like over the top with them. I mean, they were actually fantastic people, and that's that's kind of what I wanted to emulate. So when I created Pacesetter Games Simulations, it was it was uh, in pure homage to the original Pacesetter. That's kind of the the mentality of the company I wanted them to, to run. Um, even though we don't produce really anything related to the original pace setter because we're not. And I, I, I've been very careful through the years, like I said, we've been around for four, 14 years now, um, of, of saying, look, we're not them, you know, and, and we weren't them. You know, I've got my own history and, and that kind of thing. And, uh, but that was, that's how pace our games and simulations came about it was more of an homage toward them. But our focus has been, is, is, 80% D&D, so, or D&D-related um, products. And we've got about, we've done a lot since then. But that's, um, you know, I, I I can't stress enough, again, how, how awesome that crew was, the, the, the original Pacesetter LTD crew. What just, what a great group of guys. If you met them at a convention, they would take all the time in the world to talk to you uh, about anything. They, they were not arrogant in, in the least, and I can tell you right now, uh, at TSR, that wasn't always the case. <laughs> In fact, it was more often not the case. Now, lot, the old guys now are fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. You catch them in a convention. I think you went, you, you, you were just at NTX last year, right? I think yeah, I the last, the last two, game, or um, two years I've been there, but yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, you know, I mean, you've got... Pretty much anyone who ever worked for TSR and is still alive goes to NTX. That <laughs> brings them all in. So, um, and they'll sit down. And, you know, I I'm good friends with a lot of them, but uh, you know, some guys back in that time, in their 80s time period were not very approachable. Um, yeah, I think that's a polite way of saying it. Yeah, yeah. My my first cons were really more into the 90s, uh, and really towards the end of the 90s. So to where it was a lot of the, the people that made it over into Wizards when the uh, transfer happened there. Yep. And they weren't discourteous, but they definitely, it, it, by that point, I feel like they had the air of a star about them where it's like, okay, you know, you've had your two minutes with me next, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, definitely different than well, hanging out and, with the guys that in that's, North yeah. Texas. Yeah. It was, uh, it's the, it's the, uh, the rock star analogy is not a bad one. Right. I mean, you've got and I'm not like I said, I'm not going to I'm not here to knock anyone. and I'm certainly not going to name any names. But, you know, there was a, a, a large group of people that you go to Gen Con and I went to a ton of Gen Cons. I went to like 22 in a row at one point um, where if you could even get near any of these guys, they just had adoring fans throwing themselves at their feet. And I think a lot of that caught up with some of those guys. Mm-hmm. You know, it got to their head. And who would die? Yeah. That's really what I'm looking for. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I mean, you're all, you know, it's all nice to say that's why you went into gaming, but we all know the truth. I mean, you went into. It's not for the money, it's for the groupies. Throwing throwing themselves at your feet. Well, (laughs) and when you say who could blame them is right, because a lot of those guys, you know, had had been around early on, and, you know, that was nerd culture of all nerd culture. That wasn't, you know. You were the weirdos. You, uh, were, you weren't normal or anything like that. Or, you know, if you were a game designer, can you imagine, you know, I mean, saying I'm a game designer, people would look at you like, you know, what the hell's the matter with you? <laughs> so um, so for that 
switch to kind of come around where all of a sudden these companies are making millions of dollars producing RPGs and tabletop board games, um, and all of a sudden their their popularity is elevated, and and they are famous within their own community. You know, who's not to say that that couldn't happen to anyone, right? So. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the distinction I'm going to make, like I said, is, is the guys that were at original Pacer LTD, like um, they were just were not like that at all. They just they, these were the nicest people you ever meet, and they did they just they loved what they did, and and they put out a lot of stuff. Just you can just tell how much they loved doing what they did. But a simple fact of all the products, yeah. we didn't even talk about the board games they put out. I mean, they put out. Uh, Two versions, you know, Wabbit, <laughs> yeah, the, uh, Wamp Age, Wabbit Revenge. Revenge. Those games are a blast. <laughs> if you want to sit down with beer and pretzels and play those games, find a copy of that and play that. They're great. Um, uh, Blackmore Manor, fantastic game. Really hard to find. If you're going to try and find it, it's, it's gonna co- you're going to pay. Uh, a really cool game, super innovative. And, again, they did all this in the course of, like, six or seven years. It's it's really is amazing how much they put out. Yeah. And, and it looks yeah. like it's the, the small cadre of people that you know, like like the same names are in basically every product. Oh, wait, they were very small. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were humble and they were a great group. And like I said, I don't think any of them are in gaming anymore. The only one I know of still around is Steve. And Steve still goes to con- some conventions. I see him at Gary Con every year. Um, and like I said, we talk, but. Uh, um, there's not a, a, you know, I haven't seen any of the rest of them in 25 years. So, Edwin, you looked into Crypt World, right? I did. What can you tell us about Crypt World? Um, it was, uh, so, so Crypt World is uh, Goblinoid Games, and it was 2000 and... Was I gonna say six-ish? I forgot. Oh, I didn't realize right. it was that long ago. I thought it was more recent. Huh. Uh, well, you know, we're all getting older. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was more recent once upon a time. <laughs> um, and uh, it it felt like reading an old game, uh, which was, but it it didn't like it was. It was an interest. I was interesting. One of the interesting things reading it was the. The, the sort of my brain was going back and forth between feeling like I was reading something that I might have read when I was, you know, 10 and reading something that had slightly more modern sensibilities. And and then, of course, the art is uh, um, takes us back. The, the cover is uh, Holloway and then I think and some of the internal interior art as well. Oh, really? So, yeah. So... <laughs> Um, so in, in, in that way, it also felt, um, like a trip back in time in, in a very good way. Um, and it, yeah, it's a, it's an interesting, so I will say, um, one of the things that definitely felt more modern and appealed to me a lot was the, uh, the Crypt Masters, um, the, the GM section, you know, how to be a good GM, uh, there was just a lot of really pragmatic advice, and it was much more of the sort of uh, modern flavor of here's how to help your table have fun than the uh, here's how to get them. The, you know, 
Yeah, exactly. Here's how to get a make sure make sure you hide behind a big wall while you're rolling dice so that no <laughs> one can see anything you're doing. Um, there was none of that. Um, but it, but you could still tell that it was written by people who had grown up in that uh, you know in that time period uh-huh. because the like I don't know the language and there's still the idea and there's definitely still the idea of the of the the GM as sort of the person making all the decisions like there's no um, it's not like a story based game or a, there's no story yeah. game narrative yeah there's none of this like collaborative storytelling yeah. I mean there's a little bit but there's it's yeah it's like you know, so it starts off with the crypt master must decide decide the flavor of horror, right? Uh, but but then how they you know they break it down. They talk about some of the tone and you know is it campy? Is it psychological? Is it funny? Is it serious? Is it light? Is it dark? And sort of gives some examples of those things and then talks about bits of elements that make a game horrific or you know make it feel like horror and how you might bring some of those in and some themes that you might want to think about. Um, and that was that was just a really nice bit of reading that would be, I think, useful for anyone running any sort of horror game, um, or at least somebody who's new to running horror games. Maybe that's a better way to put it. Um, and then I guess the the game, the 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 rule set, the writing of the rule set is a little bit all over the place it's sort of like and this was part that that was not as ideal about a trip back in time but like the first edition ad and d books um it's all over the place doesn't have like a natural flow from one concept to the next is that what we're talking about yeah like if you were to look something like you would have to know this rule set in order to look stuff up in it because things like you know all the the checks are described in one place but then the seven exceptions of how you might do those checks differently are described in various other places. <laughs> in fact, even in the GM health section, there's a there's some rules that are like an exception to some other rules. And I was like, wow. Um, and, you know, it's not that long. So I don't think it would take my, – my feeling was it would take six or seven, you know, good long Saturdays of playing this game before I could feel comfortable where it would where everything would flow sort of nicely, where the checks would feel natural and the um, and I would sort of know where things were and I could I could run things smoothly. But it does have this, I mean, it has this sort of interestingly complicated overriding mechanic of the uh, the chart of a t- the chart yes. yeah the chart at the back one chart uh, to the rule them all table, yeah. the action table yep um, and a lot of things seemed to work well with it. Uh, a few things felt shoehorned into it. Um, a lot of things seemed like they could be a whole heck of a lot simpler if they didn't have to sort of follow. Like, you know, when you think of like D20 as a, you know, roll 20, roll, roll a D20, roll high. Like that's a pretty straightforward guiding principle for a game. This is not that simple. <laughs> <laughs> This is, uh, you know, you're rolling a percentile dice and then you're subtracting your skill uh, from the result and you're looking at a row on a column and then you've got a, like you're cross-referencing against stuff and then you get a, a level of a result and then you've got to take that level. So every everything you try, uh, there's two types of actions, but anything interesting that you try, you know, can have sort of a, a range of results. And that part is actually really cool and uh, I think it's an old 
thing, but it's so much more interesting than the the sort of classic D and D of pass or fail. You know, it's like you could fail or you could pass and and pass with the, some problems, or eventually you could have an overriding success. But then they took that, which has been a really popular narrative gaming uh, idea for a good good while, and they sort of it meant that every rule has to have mechanics at each of those levels. Mm-hmm. So, like, you're doing a perception check, and rather than just saying, well, you can have a good, medium, or bad perception check, they actually say what a bad perception check is, what a medium is, and, like, they codified all of that. And that, I, I wasn't too excited about that. Like, that, to me, started to get a little heavy-handed and a little too... Uh, I guess crunchy. Now, Bill, you uh, can you can kind of back me up on this, uh, or correct me if I need corrected here. But uh, in the original set, everything came down to I want to say like five different letters, and, and yes. depending on what you're doing, those letters represent different things. So like um, yeah. like one of them let's say is a oh man I can't remember. I think one one was like a C, and so like if you were trying to do something that was a matter of uh, success or failure, a C would be a complete success. Whereas if you were taking damage, C would be a you know like critical damage, it, Crush, and, crushing damage. Yeah, it, it, and it's yeah crushing. That's right. Yes, uh, it's coming back to me now. <laughs> no, um, but uh, wound. It, it was funny that like they really tried hard for whatever it was, and there were like five different systems there tying into these letters to come up with something that had that letter that would make sense for that result. That was super fun to read, yeah. and this this has it this has it still, and it's super fun how yeah. So S L M H C. Yes, yes, yes. From from S-L-M-H-C. suckiest to uh, <laughs> for S to uh, uh, to the yeah, C, uh, and uh, yeah. Oh, sorry, good. I've got my original show right here in front of me. So yeah, it, that's exactly what they did with the action table, and that that runs through Time Master and Star Ace use the exact same thing. It's the the quote unquote pace setter system. So yeah, they yeah. they did. I mean. So if you were if you were attacking someone and and you roll your result and you check up against that on the chart you could get a letter you're gonna get a letter right so let's say you get L uh, and if you were shooting at someone that's a light wound okay but if you, if a character's got to make a fear check and chill L is lily livered <laughs> so right, right. <laughs> they absolutely did have to come up with with all kinds of crazy stuff and you know. I I look at it it it, it, it was very innovative for the time. Uh, when it came out, and and that's what Gablinoid did with um, with Crip World, right? I mean, they just retro clone retro clone chill is what they were doing. Um, yeah. Uh, I, I've got it, and I, I'm actually I just pulled my old copy out because I I tried to actually be prepared, which I, I really <laughs> am. <laughs> so it's it, when yeah, you know, I'm just kind of comparing the books. Cause I never really did that, and and they they pretty much did you know for the most part copy. Uh, the rule set and chill. Although you know, they, like you said, it's the presentation of it. I'm, I'm not, I'm not a big fan, but the concept that they did it and when they did it. So my, my copyright of mine says 2013. So I, unless okay. there's a little one out maybe there, maybe right, maybe right, yeah, yeah. Um, I, yeah. So I mean, I remember when it came out, and I, I, I know I'm old, but I don't think I was that old. <laughs> um, but it, uh. They did a really nice job, I think, of trying to mimic the original chill. But I think sometimes, and I see a lot of 
again, we kind of go back, circle way back around to what our original conversation with game design and that kind of thing. I think a lot of people get in that habit when they when they when they clone something or retro clone a game, they they get into um, they get into a funk where they're trying to make it look too much like the original. Mm-hmm. I don't think they in 2021 that's really where we should be going. Again, right. when they did Crip World, that was eight nine years ago. It was kind of like the beginning of the OSR. Everyone was mimicking. If you put a D and D clone module out, you know, a Swords and Wizardry module out, you made it look exactly like an old D and D module, right? With even with a detached cover. Help that we did. Our our first modules looked almost exactly like old TSR modules. We had to you know separate recovers the whole nine yards hmm. we designed the interiors the same and i did that for a year or two and i'm like you know what am i doing why <laughs> like doing the straight now, now that we've now that we've uh, explored our nostalgia we can actually right. look and so i think crip world suffers a lot from that um it, it and like gobbledygook did they've done a couple they did um well they still produce they, they bought the rights to years later they bought the rights to um time master I can't remember what else they have. They have one that's like a zombie world, but I think that's just yeah, their they own have the thing. Rot, rot, rot world. world. That's right. Rot world. Rot yeah. world. Which I think uh, actually they published before Crypt World. I think Rot World was sort of their. I agree. I think you're right. That, presentation that, of the system for them. Yeah. Yeah. And then they and they actually they actually so Babylon Games actually bought the Pace Setter brand um, mm-hmm. about eight or nine years ago. Um, Maybe not even yeah, that. Because my copy says Goblinoid Games and Pace Setter on the cover. Yeah, it's, that's definitely a newer printing. Is there, I think the I'm not that's sure. PDF. <laughs> PDF with um, a 2013 date on it. But yeah, so they they did buy the logo or quote unquote Pace Setter brand, um, and then they bought they actually bought Time Master. They own they own that rule set. Hmm. Uh, I think they own something else. I don't think it's Star Ace. I think Philip Reed owns Star Ace. Um, it's it's kind of funny the old the old the old Pacer Ltd IP kind of got spread out all over and then Chill's own Chill is owned by another party well Mayfair acquired it mm, when Pacer yeah. when they dissolved and then uh, you know they put their version out which I'm sorry I, I loved a lot of things Mayfair did that was hot garbage I never um, I never played their system uh, but I did awful. own several of their uh, their like books about things you know like they had a book on voodoo and yep. a book on vampires. And I really felt that for the time, those were pretty good references. But I, I got to say, I've oh, never played the, the system though. Yeah, they're they're no, they're fantastic looking products, and they're they're incredibly detailed. It's not chill. Yeah, um, it's just not with that game. When you talk to people who played chill back in the day, there's a vibe that this game has. Uh, the Mayfair chill turn did not carry that. Yeah, through. they were trying to, more, to do like masquerade. They're trying to get yeah. so horror. Yeah, they were really trying to get that horror. Uh, um, oh God, what's I, Okay, what's the Vampire the Masquerade, Vampire, the Masquerade kind of thing, and all all that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. which I was never had anything to do with any of that. Um, but yeah, it just they got they got so far away from the roots of what the game was, um, and produced it. It's a, essentially a different game, I and mean, it's really a completely different game than than the, pay, the original Pace Setter Chill. Um, so and now Chill is owned by somebody else. Yeah, I'm trying to remember. Us and my understanding is it's never ever going to see the light of day again. So, well, I know they, they um, produced a book. I know. Uh, they did. Yeah. In 2015, they did a Kickstarter. It didn't do particularly well. It's called Chill 3rd Edition, I think. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if they reprinted it. I don't have a copy of it. 
Um, yeah, I don't either. I missed the book. I, I know that, but it's, it's yeah. The the, the we're never going to see Chill come out as a game by the current owners. That's my that's my understanding from people I've talked to, and they're not going to also they're not going to sell it to anybody. The the basically they uh, Chill's been bought to be buried, um, essentially. <laughs> so, um, so uh, you know, kudos definitely for Goblinoid for for doing Crip World and. Um, like Edwin said, it's 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 cool to look through it because it does. There's definitely a nostalgia vibe to their their version of the game. Um, so you know, on on that end, it's it's pretty cool. It's absolutely pretty cool to look at. Well, and they, yeah, just one of the one of the things that I thought was interesting about it, which was related, I think, to the nostalgia and to the the retro clone piece, also, is they they seem to struggle to, to find their voice a little bit because, you know, yes. there's, there, there's the mechanics, which is fine. You know, that's sort of just some technical writing, but then there's sort of the chatty portions mixed in with the rules and little bits of humor here and there. And it was, it was, it was a little bit uneven. It, it felt, I don't know if it was cause it, it, this is multiple authors or if because they were taking uh, too much, you know, if they were sort of trying to imitate, older writing and then also do their own writing. And that sort of got a little bit conflicted with itself or what, but it was sort of an interesting, like I got, I had, I had speed bumps as I was reading <laughs> this thing. And there's there, no question. And um, so the, the original I, rules I, I, had kind of that same issue though, really, because they tried to do this thing where this like Raven was going to be narrating the, uh, the player's guide, but then it just like, sometimes the Raven was talking to you and sometimes not. A little humor here, and then just a whole bunch of straightforward rules, and uh, and I'm gonna give them a pass on that because that was 1980, whatever. Right. <laughs> <Yeah. old. Brave. laughs> so, Avant-garde, yeah. Do something. They, they get a pass. So, um, but you know, it's it's one of those things, and where, um, I think you know what's the, you know the saying is you know you got to pick which side of the road you're gonna go down. Don't mm-hmm. try and down the middle. Because that's when you're going to get run over. <laughs> um, and I, I think that's the the feel I get a little bit from from Crip World. And it's they're not alone. And I, again, I want to say for when it came out and what they did, I think it, it was really cool. But a lot of the early retro clones, I think, suffer from the same thing, right? It was just too much mimicry of the original. You're never going to recapture what what somebody did in 1982 or 83 or 84 or whatever. You're just not. You're not going to do and that. And the today. fans aren't really looking for that either. They think they are, Absolutely but they're not. not. They're, they're right. not. And if you want to bring new people in, so, you know, the big talk that we have um, in my game design world of friends, um, of other publishers and stuff is, you know, it's the OSR crowd is great. I love publishing for them. We will always publish stuff for the OSR crowd. But, you know, if, if you want to be large, successful on a larger scale, you you have to address in, in the D&D world, you have to address the 5e crowd. Mm-hmm. Okay. If you don't, you don't have to, you know, you can do anything you want. You can retro clone money stuff all day long, make modules and be perfectly happy. And I think that's awesome. Um, but you know, a lot of companies like ours and obviously frog God, I mean, 5e is a, a huge part of our, our product base. So in how that ties into to this, um, I know it sounds like I'm getting way off here, but how that ties into this is if you want to make a modern clone of an older game, um, you can do it for the love of doing it, and it's going to be Crip World, which is cool, absolutely cool. 
But if you want to do it and get it out to a, a larger market or bring new people in to play it, then you have got to up your game and you have got to make it much more modern. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that goes from all aspects of it. That goes from the writing. It goes to the design. It doesn't mean you have to abandon the core rules, but you definitely have to update them and make them um, uh, more attractive to people I mean, who we, only experience so much. So, I mean, we've had we've had so many millions of hours of gameplay out there in the last forty or fifty years that it's a shame to waste all of that learning. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah, but yeah. It, it, they've all evolved, right? I mean. That's why there's D and D five E. I mean, it's, it's I mean, all, I feel like the what's Call of Cthulhu on seventh edition? Yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, I feel like the and like I feel like what I want to mimic is the like the sense of wonder and the the sense of new and novelty and like that's what I remember from when I was twelve or whatever. Absolutely. And you know, yeah. for me, sure, I can I can get nostalgic about about uh, you know the language in in the one E uh, player's handbook or whatever, but but someone just coming into the hobby is not going to be nostalgic about it, and so we have to figure out how to make that person have that same sense of wonder and yes, yeah. And, and, and on yeah. the flip side of the coin, that the person that's already experienced that to re-experience it isn't nostalgia. You know, it's not. You know, it doesn't hold right. up to their first experience. Uh, well. It, and also, how we have to look at it too is as, as old grognards and old timers. When we first started playing these things, these games were new, so everything about it was new, mm-hmm. right? So the the fact that there was a, a thing called a role playing game was new. You know, <laughs> polyhedral dice you'd never even <laughs> seen them. Yep. So the, the and how that all integrated together. So every bit of it was new to us back then. So if you're just gonna clone a game from 1980. And put it out today, and think it's going to be the next big thing. I'm going to, I'm going to tell you right now. I mean, it's probably not because <laughs> you're not doing anything innovative, and you're not. Um, there's nothing in there that's going to be new and exciting to people because even if you're retro cloning an old game, you still want to see something that's new and innovative. Okay, I mean it, that's that's my perspective, and I'm totally biased. Uh, three years ago now, we put out. Um, uh, the BXRPG, which was our retro clone of BXDND, and and you can play that that version, our version of BXDND. Um, you could pull out B4, or B5, and seamlessly run with our rule set. Um, but we also put a lot of sexier new stuff in there mm-hmm. because we weren't going to just reproduce BX. I mean, first of all, Necrotic Gnome already does that with old school essentials, so. You know, they they basically they kind of I'm not a corner on that. Yeah, yeah, I'm not an authority <laughs> on it. I'm, I'm really not. I, in fact, I when we put out the BXRPG, I I didn't even know they existed. I mean, that's how clueless I was with that. So, um, you know, our idea was to put BX out, but put it out in the player's handbook and a and a uh, dungeon master's guide, which we had to call dungeon guide, obviously for <laughs> legal reasons. Um, <laughs> but that's uh, that's that's what we did, and that was uh, you know that was the brainchild of that, but. And then as we we produced it, we you know we're moving through it. And I'm like you know I just can't reprint the BX rules. This this is not yeah it'd be great for a certain segment, but we want to put a game out there that young people you know dads can bring their kids into play and it's going to be exciting for them. And let's say their only experience is 5e. We want to have a version of BX that has got small snippets of kind of what 5e does a little bit um, by by just adding a little more dimension and some innovativeness to to BX, I mean, 
you know, our slogan at the time was here's BXD&D um, as if it would be produced today versus in 1983. So, yeah. um, and that's what we did. But again, we, we, I think that's what, what needs to be done when you look at anyone who wants to retro clone one of these older games, um, just reprinting it. That's great. If that's what you want to do, I'm, you know, I'm here for you. I'll probably even buy it. But, uh, you know, I think if you want to try to target it to a larger audience, you need to think about those things, um, about innovating it, just making it more sexy. I mean, I, I don't know how it's a, a plainer way of saying it. All right, guys. So, so uh, here's a good segue here because this is what we do on this old dungeon. We, we've nice. got Crypt World. We've, we've got Chill, basically the same game. What what do we – if we're going to run this, if you're going to, you know, give it a little of a, you know – house rule spin-off kind of thing and, and run it for a crowd today. What are some things you're like, yes, this is quintessential to this system. It's got to have this kind of thing. And what are some things you're like, well, they really should have went this way to, to to kind of bring it up to speed. What are some innovations you see that need done here? And what would you keep? Well, I, can, I can tell you innovations I've got written down on paper because um, we're going to put out a version of this in about two years. So Nice. Um, and um, it, we're still a long ways off. That's why I'm saying two years because we're not we're not ready. But um, we're going to put out our own version. We're going to retro clone it, but it's it's going to be kind of like what we did the BXD thing. We're gonna we're gonna bring it up in into you know what I think what modern gamers, not just old school gamers, are are looking for. And I know our you're probably your target audience with this podcast is a lot of old school gamers maybe. But and that's I'm here for it, right? I mean that's <laughs> just that's who I am. Um, but we realize as a publishing company, we need to do stuff that brings it up. So what I love about Ochil is I, I love the fact that you can do everything with D10s. And I, I, we're not, that's something I'm not going to change. Um, I'm not, you know, I wouldn't introduce a, but if it's just, I, I love the character generation. Um, it's, it's certainly got, you know, some of the old school, you know, a bunch of attributes, but I love the way you generate 3D10 times way, 2 plus yeah, 20. Okay. <laughs> hey, you know what? hey, that's not that hard of math. What are you talking about? You can't get, you get a macro for that, that, you know? No, how about PCN plus WPR plus luck divided by two? Always <laughs> round up. But I, I, I do like it. It just needs to be cleaned up, mm-hmm. right? It needs to be cleaned up a little bit. But I love, I, I love the 3D10 system, and they actually gave you three in the original game. They gave you 3D10 dice. Mm-hmm. Has to be the only box game that ever came out with three dice. And all three of them were the same, same dice. Die, yeah. I mean, it, <laughs> I, I don't think anybody else did that. Um, real, real quick, while we're on attributes, maybe some game had three d six in it. Maybe I don't. I don't know. But. And, and Edwin, I don't know if it's like this for Crip World. I'm going to assume it was. But uh, what I found fascinating is that there's not really an intellectual attribute in this game. There's perception nope. and willpower, but no intelligence. Nope. So it's like now, you know, there's always that argument: dexterity and agility. Yeah. Yeah. So, so there's always that argument. Yeah. yeah, strength, dexterity, and agility. Yeah, there, there's all sorts of physics. But there, there's been the argument, you know, long into gaming that you know players are always playing at their own intelligence anyhow. You know, whether their character's got an 18 or whether the character's got a four, they're always playing them with whatever intelligence <laughs> they have. So I don't know if that's so, you know a design feature it, or what. It's a definitely a design feature. So with chill, I mean. Y- y- Again, we, it, it's hard for us sometimes to go back and remember these things because my memory is terrible. But with Chill, you know, the whole concept of this game was basically the um, their their key component of this game was fear. 
right? Mm-hmm. That a character like Call of Cthulhu is insanity, right? So characters don't often die, but they go insane. And in Chill, everything kind of revolves around that fear element of not the horror part. I'm talking about the rules centric fear part of it. Oh. It's how you, how that character resists fear, reacts to fear, all that kind of stuff. So when they created their their attributes, they reverse engineered them to work for the fear mechanic on their charts. <laughs> I mean, that's that's what they did. That's why you don't have really an intelligence score. You've got a willpower, you know, a perception, um, luck. All these things kind of will, will revolve back into that fear um, uh, game mechanic. So well, I think, I think the, other, it, the other thing that's going on here, I think, is that they have their skills based on the attributes and – so investigation, journalism, like the things we think of as intelligence-based uh, skills in some games, they're just willpower, uh, perception. Willpower, luck, perception. But... Whenever they need to, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so they, they, they come up with a workaround based, on it. Yeah, it, it, investigation. Again, you think of being an intelligence score. No, it's, it's going to be perception and willpower. And they all luck drops into almost every other well, freaking thing. And, and the do. skills are, are kind of random. Like, it, it doesn't really matter what your attributes are. Every character has kind Super of random. a random a chance to get either highly skilled or, or, you know, get kind of pitiful amounts yeah. of skills. Yeah. Yeah, and again, that was a, that was a design that was feature. That, yeah, that was a design feature they wanted to do because they wanted to make their characters as random and mm-hmm. as, as variable as possible. So no two guys at the table are going to have the same character, really. It's almost – it's it's very hard to do that, even if you want – say both of them are you know ex-police officers. They're still going to wind up totally different uh-huh. when you roll them up. Um, and uh, so I think that was, again, some of the um, the idea when they when – they, kind of created this game was they reverse engineered the instead of the attributes driving the game it's everything else drives backwards and the attributes fit into how that works which is actually kind of a really cool concept mm-hmm. um going and very design fe- or design uh, yeah. methodology i guess you'd say yeah, yeah and, and i think not the easiest thing in the world to put together and as you so keenly pointed out you know where the hell is intelligence well they didn't need it <laughs> So he just got rid of it. Is <laughs> as, as odd as that sounds, it's it's just kind of what they did with it. Um, now I do want to throw this out for the audience because I know you know a lot of games you talk about. Oh, there's a, a sanity mechanic or a fear mechanic, and it normally does not translate to much. It's like okay, your character's more scared now. Oh, okay. Um, but what you'll see in the old adventures, anyhow, is there's encounters where if you don't make your fear check there is something your character is going to do that you're not going to want them to do. Like not at all. Yeah. No. And in a, in a good, a good, uh, a good game master is going to make it funny as hell. So, which is again, which is kind of where they wanted to go with this game. They did not want to turn it into Call of Cthulhu. They wanted you to sit around the table and, and, uh, and, and just have a blast. And if your character dies, you roll up a new one, um, kind of game. So, I, I think there was a lot of forward thinking, and it's funny how you can look back at some of these games that were printed now 40 years ago and say, wow, um, that's still innovative today because you don't see anyone doing that. And that's uh, – getting back to your, your question, I think that's that's kind of where I look, I'm, I'm at with this game. That's what I would kind of try to keep is that that kind of different character generation, and I would definitely stick with the, the die system. Random. I think it's – yeah, I think it's really cool. I, to me, I, I love it, but – 
you know, I'm I'm the old school guy where when you roll first level D and D characters and you go through a, a first level D and D dungeon, you're probably gonna wind up rolling five characters because you're gonna die. So, um, people will drop left and right. It's just how it is. So, I I think that's what what is neat about chill. And I th- but I think it does need it needs to be, you know, there does need to be some more innovation to it. And it does need to get cleaned up. And you need, I think you need to make it look like a, if I were to do it today and we are going to do it today, uh, it needs to look like a game that came out in 2000. For us, it's going to be 2023. So, you know, the artwork's going to have to change. The layout's going to have to change. I don't want to make it look like it did when it came out in 19, you know, whatever, whatever. So, God bless you. <laughs> so, Edwin, what about you? As awesome as it is, is uh, you know, as awesome as it is, if someone were re- someone were to reproduce this exactly as as it was produced in 1984, I think whatever, um, I'd buy it. I'd buy it in a minute um, because it's cool. Uh, it doesn't mean I play it, <laughs> but I. <laughs> so I think um, to I, so I'm not uh, I'm not a big fan of Powered by the Apocalypse games, but I do like their innovation of you know the the uh failure success with cost or success mm-hmm. and i like the softness of it in general uh, for most of the pbt games and i think i think i would keep pretty much everything as is but i i would strip out all of the specific mechanics of what the letters mean mm-hmm. You know, so for knowledge check, a limited is one relevant fact is found. A moderate is two relevant facts. And it says, and some of them are like, uh, you take eight hours to find one thing doing research. And then, you know, the high success is you uh, get up to four facts at two hours per, like, I think I would just strip out all of that crunch and just let the GM or the GM and the players decide, hey, I got a medium success. Let's talk about that. Yeah, Uh, I... And when you you nailed it with that because this again this is a, a game of its time right it's a mid eighties game or mid early eighties game where crunch was king yeah. so um, today that's that's not what I think anyone's looking for I know I know as a, as a as someone as a game designer who who would run this I don't I don't want to deal with that mm-hmm. right? I don't want to be shackled by that yes. like I, yep. I was I talking move about I was talking with uh, one of our authors about um, railroading and one of the things we were thinking though is is the you don't want to railroad the gm either (laughs) exactly (laughs) so the the rules and the adventure need to leave enough breathing room in my opinion for the gm also to have that creative fun and then the gm needs to leave breathing room for the players to have fun with their characters Uh, and i think that's one of the also the, the other thing i was thinking about is that there were seemed like there were a lot of things that where you had this character, but you couldn't actually affect, like you couldn't use your character mechanics to affect the outcome of situations. And I think one of the ones which is that, that you brought up is the idea that, yeah, we have this random number of skills, like no matter any, and that the stats are also, um, you know, it's all, it's all old school, you know, 3d six down the line mentality of, of character generation and I think I like that availability, but I think if I were to publish this as opposed to house rule it, or maybe even if I were just to try to play it, I might come up with a effectively an array or a point by type of system, because I think that there are a lot of players who are not very comfortable with the 
um, mm-hmm. you know, with this just completely, they, they play want what, a little more control yeah, over their character. Play what, lear, uh, ugh, still can't say, play what lands in your lap. Yeah. That kind of yeah. thing. Yeah. So the other, the other thing I was, um, I wanted to bring up was, was as much as I love character generation is this, this needs a more defining element and, for us, I know the direction we're going to go is we're going to do kind of like generic character classes mm-hmm. that can mm-hmm. then fit into other jobs. Again, like if you were a doctor, like we might have a medical field. Um, then would that have character. like skill trees that like are kind of packaged yeah, with it yeah. kind of thing? That, that that fit within a quote-unquote class, although there's, you know, it's obviously not going back to D&D classes, but something similar to that is, mm-hmm. is what we're working on with like it. That. So, so... It, you know, characters have a little more definition. I, I, you know, we all love variety and we all love randomness to a point, but this isn't Traveler where some, you know, you want either right. character <laughs> generation. You know, it's so random like that. And I think that's that's one of the pitfalls definitely of Chill is uh, original Chill is we all sometimes you know have in mind what we want to play. You're gonna have a hard time doing that by rolling up a character and chill. You're just, you're gonna get what you get. Uh-huh. And right. so I think part of our our thought process is to we're gonna do something a little more aligned with quote unquote a class system. Um, and we're also gonna the again as fun as it is to look at this action table, um, it needs to be broken up. Yeah. So it's not you know one ring to rule them all is not gonna work. See now so much. In my mind, like I desperately want to keep this table. If I'm redesigning this game, uh, not not the table as is, but just the concept of a game oh, based on a table. Yes, a- yeah. absolutely. I I wouldn't change the the uh, mechanic of how you get to that table or what the results are, but it needs. And a lot of people hate hearing this. It needs more tables, not not less. Oh, really? See, I was so. thinking. I, and it's interesting that one of the guys that wrote this, the uh, what is it, Mark Akers, is that right? I think yep. he also was in on the uh, Marvel superheroes project in uh, the the, the, Mar- the TSR game that is. Yep. And uh, I, I look at this table, and I think, man, this is just like two, three steps away from being that. And I think what that <laughs> table does that this one doesn't is it sort of it, it makes it so that you have this interface between you and the numbers. And uh, you know you're, you're looking at colors and oh I'm I'm three steps up from where I ne- needed to be so I've got this kind of success or I'm two steps down so I have this kind of failure and uh, to me that moves a lot faster at the table than rolling and then determining oh I'm you know 23 points off okay here's where I'm at on the chart there's the defensive call I'm lo- I'm looking at okay this is the result I got uh, I think almost going to that kind of phase rip sort of scenario where everything's preloaded you know by your stats that you're these colors of results and on the table the colors are laid out and hey you made it two up from where you needed to be uh so that means not only did you you know find this clue but you know that it means this this and this because um, i think that's the problem that the, the table as is uh and granted i haven't played this uh you know in a, in a long while but it it goes much slower than what the pace of the game should be in my opinion that's that's uh you know that's a that's a fair assessment. I, I agree with you. Although I 
I like the table. I just don't. I just think it can't be a catch-all for me. It needs to be broken up a lot more. And and that said, I'm one of those guys. I can't stand the Marvel superheroes. Oh really? I think it's oh sorry, man. Worst games ever produced. Really? Yeah, I think I think it is the worst superhero <laughs> game ever. And this is just my opinion. I'm a Champions guy oh. through and through. So um, I my whole group hated it. So <laughs> and I still don't care for it. And um, but. I love the fact that you, other people do. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not a fan of the character generation. If you made your own hero in that game, uh, you had like lobster claws and laser beam eyes, and it just never made right, any sense. It was totally, yeah, it, was, it made no sense. But the the ability to put heroes of different power levels together and roll through that chart once you kind of had some experience using the chart, I found to be just fantastic. Uh, you know, well, I, I know a lot of people who love it. I know a lot of people, I mean, it's still got a huge following, right? Yeah. I mean, I just wasn't one of them. <laughs> Edwin, you got any experience in that? I don't, no. My, my superheroes uh, role-playing is pretty minimal. I've played a few, but I don't, not enough to have strong opinions. <laughs> Champions is the best RPG, super RPG ever produced. That's I, all you need to know, Edwin. <laughs> uh, my, my personal opinion is the, uh, the Wedge... Uh, DC Universe system is the oh best. Oh my God! Now you're losing me. Oh all no! Oh, well, he's gonna hang up on us. <laughs> but but okay, he, hear me out here. The reason I think so is because the the generation system of it and the details and the power gets to that kind of granule champions level where you can really fine tune what kind of powers and things you have. But the playthrough has got this like Star Wars edge where things are fast and loose and easy to determine. That's what I think. <laughs> When you were talking about the table and whether whether we need more or less, I was I was actually um, thinking back to uh, to fate. You know, it's like oh, I got a success with a raise, or I got a mm-hmm. success, or whatever. And I was like, oh, there we go. That's that's kind of where I feel like this almost wants. To, like I I love the mechanic of getting into that table, but I just want to make up my own results after the table. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. It, yeah. It, it. This. This. That table needs. I guess I'm. I'm not probably not doing a really good job of explaining my thoughts on it. That table needs. It needs expansion. It needs. It's. It's trying again to me. It's trying to be too much. It's trying to be all. You know. It's just trying to be everything in one table. And it can't. It just doesn't. It really. Doesn't I do agree. Out. There's some weird. There's a lot of weird stuff where where in order to figure out what column you're in, you have to pull some like yeah. some of those skills. Yeah, they had to pull some monkey business in order to figure yeah. out. So how it, to make that work? Like the radiation yeah. thing, I was like, oh. right? <laughs> yeah. So, so for me, you know, the the definition of it, of the table, like I said, it, it's it's fine for what it was, but in, in today's day and age, it just needs to be adjusted. But that said, we're also again, we're in, in 2021. We need to give um, there needs to be more um, opportunity to develop you know to to do your own thing on the fly with it mm-hmm. versus because i think it gives you an opportunity i think i think what this game does is it gives you opportunity to do a lot of that i mean i when we played it way back in the day i mean it just seemed this game gave us there were more at, at, at every instance it seemed like there was nothing was ever so definitive and chill versus a lot of other games right you roll dice and this is exactly what happens um where I think that's what they really wanted to do with this game. I just this chart just kind of breaks down a little bit. It needs it needs expansion, but not to the point where you are excluding options because what it, 
I think what this game yeah. does really well is create gives you more uh, ability to make more options, like you're saying. So, so when you're saying so there's expand- one, there was one sorry. other. Good. Oh, sorry. Good. Just... I'm, I'm going to take it. <laughs> Screw you. <Yeah>. There was <laughs> there was one other area of this game that really struck me as nutty in two ways, and that was the initiative and combat order system. Oh yeah. Uh, and I want to start with the initiative. I think it was initiative because that cracked me up. So there's this there's this paragraph about initiative where you do this and you do that and you compare these results and it mathematically literally comes down to flipping a coin. <laughs> like I was, and, and I thought, okay, so I don't mind that. I guess sure, flip a coin. Although I'm gonna be pissed if I'm that character with high decks and I want to and I'm used to going first or whatever. But then the combat uh, system, the the within a round. The things that happen, uh, the sequence of play is what they call it. You mean those simple uh, 14 steps? The 14 <laughs> steps uh, that include declaration and then, yeah, that I think is something I would um, not feel beholden to hold to if I were redoing this game. Yeah, let's be fair, there's only eight. Uh, I disagree. <laughs> Let me find the page. No. This says 14. The first one is the CM declares NPC and animal creature actions, and the 14th is stamina loss and recovery. <laughs> but it, yeah, it, it. And it goes, yeah, so we've got declaration stages, and then and then you roll initiatives, so, which is flipping a coin, and then you've got paranormal and missiles and the movement and then the other kind of missile thing the defense missiles which i still don't understand and then the other side does their stuff and then back to the first side for their parent like it's a it's wow like i can't even like swords and wizardry has like a four stage thing and i don't even do that and most of us don't like (laughs) i don't know hardly anyone that does that follows the combat system in bx as written it's just that's it's silly but uh um, I, I, again, I'm, I'm just going to, in defending, in defending this game a little bit, um, this was written in the age of, of crunchy rules. This is, oh, absolutely. we still absolutely. haven't got away from, right? I mean, early eighties, we, the roots of all these RPGs is still, you know, tactical mm-hmm. war games, simulationist war games. ideas. Well, I'm not, and, I'm yeah. not attacking and, this game No, at no, all. I know you're, I know you're I'm not. Just, this, it like what I, I would do differently now, that's yes, something I would yeah, do differently. Exactly. And, and and I know I know exactly what you're saying. I'm not I'm not beating you up on that at all. That's not that's not my point. I'm I'm just talking pure. If if someone off the street picked up this book and looked at it, you know the context is everything with these games. The yeah. people who wrote these are still guys whose formative years of gaming was sitting around sand tables, mm-hmm. you know, shooting, blowing each other with yep. tanks and and Napoleonics. So we that's why we still see. I, you can you can just see a lot of that old. Old war gamey crunch sneak into these mid eighties games. Absolutely, yeah. No, um, actually, one of the ones that don't was... are rare, but you see glimpses of brilliance too, right? Mm-hmm. Where they're yeah. they're coming out of that shell. Yeah, yeah. No, one of the things I wrote down was that this this game, reading this game, um, made me really think about the age old uh, combat of the sort of simulationist gaming uh, versus. Um, the more narrative gaming or, or whatever we want to call it. And it, like, you can, you can feel the tension as you read this game of like, you can, you can feel that fight going on <laughs> in mm-hmm. these, in this rule set. Um, and this, I think you're right though, uh, Bill, that this is sort of a, that they came down in the middle of the road a little bit. Yep. Yep. For sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, I think there's, I mean, the, the amount of brain power that went into this to, to, 
to think about that 14 step system and, and, you know, figure out, okay, we want to do this and that, but we want to keep it balanced. And because it's a random initiative system, we need to make sure that there's not too big an advantage to going first or second. Um, I think, and there's so much, as you so much tactical thought uh, into this, into these rules in places. That's mm-hmm. fascinating. Again, like I'm, I just love looking at the history of these games too. And, and to think, to think back that they, they put this together in the, in a relatively fast amount of time. I mean, yeah. Inside what's talking. largely a vacuum. I mean, you know, nowadays we have access to millions yeah. of other games that can influence us and, and help us, uh, you know, take paths. But, you know, the Internet's not there. They're, you know, even though, you know, Chaosium's no, two years in by the time they're making this, you know, it's still not a guarantee everybody that's making this is familiar with those rules and, you know, jiving from some of them or whatever. Yeah, it's just the technology they had to use to put these books together. They were still He's cutting cool. and pasting yeah. stuff back then. Okay, right. so it's uh, <laughs> it, it's crazy to to look what they these guys put together in in that amount of time and and like you said the amount of detail that's in here uh, is is amazing and it's crazy because you know we're sitting here talking about all this stuff and people are thinking oh my god it's got to be some huge ass rule book now, this is a sixty four page <laughs> rule book that's it <laughs> and that that that's you know there's art there's character sheets there's yeah you it's know, tight. It's yeah, sixty-four pages, and it's it's all there. Everything you need to play this game is in this is in this book. Character creation, the whole everything, you know. Um, and that's to me that that's kind of an amazing thing for any any game at that back then. Sure. So, um, yeah, it's fascinating. I, I mean, there, there's some great points about the detail and the amount of complexity that whether they wanted it or not are in there. I uh. I would look forward to uh, playing in your playtest of of the version of this that you guys come up with. I'll tell you that right now. It'll be. Uh, I can tell you right now. It's going to be our first playtest. Will probably be either at GaryCon 2022 or NTX 2022. That's when we'll start field testing it. I'm happy to. I will aim for North Texas 22. That sounds marvelous. <laughs> we'll definitely be. It'll be around that time period. We, I mean, a lot of times we try to release stuff around NTX. That's like always our big release con. Um, right. We just love. We just uh, that's that's my favorite place to go. So as far as cons, but I, it won't be ready. It's there's there's a lot to do with this game for us, and we've got a lot of we got a ridiculous amount of projects in front of it. So <laughs> I mean, right now, like like I said, we got another one coming, and then we've got our our Gamma X is coming up uh, the first of the year. You mentioned it. It's fair game now. All right, I, <laughs> yeah. I'm a huge, uh, currently anyhow, huge uh, Gamma World, Mutant Crawl Classics, post-apocalyptic yep. uh, Thundar the Barbarian fan. Tell me about this. What's it going to be? When's it going to be? What do you got? It's kickstarting in January. Right. I can tell you that. And if you get uh, Wampler's uh, Scientific Barbarian 4, there's a write-up of it in there. where we, He had us put something together for that. Um, I think that's if you. I think it was a. Is that Kickstarter still going or is it done? I, if it's done, it's just recently done because I, I remember right. it was going just right. like a week ago, I think. But he'll have it out. He'll have it out, and I know Jim's. I just talked to him a couple weeks ago. I mean, he he rolls this stuff out quick, so it'll be out probably within a month. But we we did a write up for him in that. So basically, Gamma X is a uh, 
it's a Gamma World 1E slash 2E, and I'm going to tell you right now, stuff from 3E and 4E have leaked into it. I'm a huge Gamma World fan, if you haven't figured that out yet. <laughs> um, but so we're, we're retro-cloning Gamma World 1E, 2E, but we're using our BX or the BX RPG core mechanic rule set, which... Again, now I'm gonna people's eyes are gonna start glazing over when I start talking rules, but a lot of the original Gamma rules are very close to BX D and D anyway. Oh, yeah. uh, Dungeon Master's Guide, so, right? All the yeah, here's your laser yeah. gun. All right, yay! <laughs> yeah, it, pretty much. So, so again, we're just we we we, we did kind of what I was talking about before. We're we're, we're tightening all that up because I, I don't want to present Gamma World One E. That's not what we want to do. So we're 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 tightening up. We're sexing it up for 2021, which will be 22 now. Um, when it launches and comes out, and it'll it'll come out in at NTX next year. That's when that's the retail release. The Kickstarter will probably ship in May, um, I would guess right now. Um, so, but anyway, that's that's again. If you can play BX D and D, you're gonna be able to play this game. Uh, we've got uh, class. It's a class system based game. We've got experience. The characters can actually. Uh, Go up in experience level. I know there's an option for that in in one e gamma world that nobody ever used. <laughs> um, so we're we're trying to stay true. We're staying true to the vibe of Gamma World one e, um, and even even a little bit harsher. This is I mean, we're gonna give the option for tons of tech, but not starting out. Okay. So kind of how we how I look at it is that, you know, your characters are pretty much, uh, the world's, when, when we start our post-apocalypse in Gam- Gamma X, the world is literally uh, barely creeping into the Iron Age, what's left of it. And there's not a lot left. Um, <laughs> people alive, that is. Mm-hmm. So, but there's a huge world of, you know, the ancients stuff laying around that you can go find. But it's uh, it's not going to be, you're not going to run around at first level with a laser rifle. Um Kind of thing. Well, in that so, case, or, I'm not going to play. Or, 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 or find, you might find one, but it's going to have like one charge or something like that. So it's kind of like a, a, a kind of a grow as you go a little more. You know, we wanted to start it out a potion a of tougher, laser rifle. You know, other, otherwise, you're 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 not really to, to me. You're not really playing Gamma World at that point. You know, kind of Gamma World is kind of the excitement of finding the unknown mm-hmm. stuff out Absolutely, there and, yeah, and experiencing yeah. all that and letting your characters go through and say, "Holy shit, what is that?" and figuring it out and you know, I mean, hell, what kind of modules where characters are going to be going out in space and going out to sea? I mean, we're, we're, it'll get crazy. It'll be <laughs> quick enough, um, but still be wild enough and rare enough that when you do find cool stuff, it's really cool stuff. Otherwise, you know, you create a game where everyone's running around in power armor after mm-hmm. their second or third play session. You know, really, you know, are you playing Gamma World anymore? Well, I guess you kind of are, but why not just make a futuristic game where you're running around in power armor? Mm-hmm. So, um, so that that's kind of the the principle behind it, um, but we want definitely want to evoke, you know, that that one e two e gamma world feel, but we're going to do it in a modern rule set and hopefully, you know, make it attractive to not just all us old grognards, but you know the twenty five year olds who are playing modern RPGs um, that we can bring into our OSR world because that's kind of one of our tenets at Paysetter is we we really do want to bring young people into the fold. Because that's the future of gaming. I mean, our games aren't going to be around 20 or 30 years from now if we don't bring young people into the uh, uh, into our games. And I'm not trying to get all philosophical no, here. It's just but, the truth. Man. But it's it's the simple truth of the matter. And if we, if we can't do that, you know, these games are going to be just 
sitting in people's collections somewhere not going to be played and as much as i am a collector um i love playing you know i'm i'm, I'm a gamer i love playing games so that's what we're doing with gamma x um so, so there's this fence in gamma world that people are on one side of or the other and that's the yeah. uh, the idea that your game master describes things either in in modern terms and you know as a player what what you're looking at but you react with your character how you should or shouldn't i guess or the game master describes them in you know oh you have a cylinder with a slight bend in it and there's a wiggly piece in the middle and uh, <laughs> what do you think about that? Those two dynamics. Uh, where do you fall? And, and you know, if you're so, yeah. here's where I'm going to break my rule about going down the middle of the road. <laughs> um, we do a little bit of both okay. in in Gamax. We're 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 going to do a lot of, uh, especially with the characters early on, right when they're first kind of starting out and first finding things. We want to keep that kind of mystery and. And try and bring that element of what the hell is this? <laughs> you know, what did I just find? And what does it do? And uh, hey, you know, but it, realistically speaking, right? We we know what we can't not know what we don't you know not know anymore. We know yeah. what we know. So you know, you, you you can pull the wool over a little bit, but that's not really the intention. So we want to keep a little bit of the mystery in it because I think that's part of the fun. Plus, we're, we've got a ton of stuff in it. Like at at the point where the world was no longer the world. It was advanced. It wasn't 1985 or 2022. We're bringing it Far farther from, in the yeah. future. So, so there's stuff that that we're going to describe in this game that will leave you saying, "Well, what the hell is that?" You know, because mm-hmm. it's weird and it's different and it's it is actually futuristic. But you know, game our players are smart and they're going to figure things out. And uh, but you know, part of the fun is for us. Um, in designing the game, the the, element, the tack we took with that was that just because the the player knows what it is doesn't mean his character is going to necessarily know what it is, and he's still got to go through a what we call a discovery system, uh, which is a, a die roll and or chart following thing like the original Gamma World. So it may not even work, or he might blow himself up or whatever else. So we're going to include all that fun stuff in the game. Now, do you, so are, are you planning on doing caveats? Because one of the things I found in uh, Mutant Crawl Classics, anyhow, is a character can be exploring something that's, you know, potentially a harmless thing or that's just just obvious where its dangerous bits are and it can still blow up and kill them. <laughs> and we're like, okay, now we're not, you know, I know we rolled that, but this is what really happened. You know, I, I, there's oftentimes I'm retconning the rules on the charts uh, for our group when we're playing. Yes. So what what we did is instead of going straight to roll one die, if you roll a one, you figured it out. If you roll a ten, you blew up the half the city. <laughs> um, there's there's intermediate steps, right? right? So Good things that are extremely deadly could be or something that they find that could be extremely deadly to a character. Um, there's going to be triggers along the way of, hey, you might want to stop now, right? Your character's smart enough to know that what he's doing is probably not a good idea anymore. Um, and we, one of the character classes that we created, hopefully like every party quote unquote will have one of these is, so basically we have humans, but humans we broke down into, we got three character classes right now. We might have one or two later, but we got, uh, uh just a basically a human warrior character class. We've got what called, we, right now we're calling an archeo, which is basically a human who, um, basically studies every, all the ancient stuff. That's cool. He's fascinated with ancient stuff. That's, that's kind of what he does. So sage, right? Mm-hmm. So kind of, kind of. Um, and then we've got like a scavenger class. So the sage kind of guy can 
while he still doesn't know a lot of things or he might be completely wrong on things, i.e. like the little mermaid thinking a fork is a, <laughs> is a hairbrush, you know, um, that kind of fun stuff. We want to make sure that that kind of thing is in there, but we don't want to lead people down the garden path of death every time they find something. So, but, uh, I also kind of, you know, again, I'm, I'm a super old school Grognard guy and the fear of death and the fear of something bad happening to me is kind of got to be a little ever present here and there. So, um, you know, again, the, my philosophy is we don't want characters running out there in the first adventure and, and getting 10 miles outside the village and all of a sudden everyone's got power armor and laser rifles. It's like, you know, how would that actually work, you know? And then if they did it, everybody would yeah. have it. So they'd be so anyway. So of society. And yeah, it, it's right. So we, we want to keep things a little bit. Although, like I said, one of our first adventures, there's a, basically a cruise ship driving by your village. So <laughs> A ghost yeah, cruise we're ship? We're going to have fun just on a sort of kind of autopilot. Yeah. That's cool. Sort of. I like that idea. Gonna have to steal that one. Um, but uh, it's uh, that that's where we're going with it. And uh, you know, beyond anything else, we want to make sure it's a fun game because uh, to me, um, I don't want to get too. Again, it goes back to kind of that pace setter philosophy: is we don't want to ever get too full of ourselves or too. I'm not about making. I don't want to write the next uh, world's most complicated game or you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, super intellectual game. Uh, we want to do stuff that's fun, and that's what we've always tried to do with most of our adventure modules and that kind of thing. So um, that we want to evoke that classic Gamma World feel, but we want to make sure that we put enough into this. It's going to be full color. It's going to be, you know, I mean, so we're gonna, it, we're definitely going to sex it off. And it, so, this is a, uh, a hardbound book. Is that what this is? So the Kickstarter is going to have you're going to have a couple different options. We're going to do a box set. Um, so uh, the Kickstarter, you're going to have both options. You're going to have a player's guide and a, uh, just like we did with the BXRPG, you're going to have a player's guide and a, and a, a game master guide. Um, one's the alpha guide and the gamma guide, and um, we're calling it. So, um, yes, so and the, the, the box set will have soft covers inside of it. And uh, the box set right now, I think, for the Kickstarter is going to have one or two adventure modules in it, dice, um, box, two rule books. And then we're going to also have a hardcover option where um, there'll be two hardcovers for the rule books because I'm right now these books are going to come in at you know they're going to both come in at a hundred plus pages. Um, they you know I don't how we how we can take a sixty four page rule book game and turn it into two hundred and fifty pages is ridiculous, but that's <laughs> what's going to happen. Um, and uh, like I said, they're, they're, we'll have a hardcover option. I don't know if we're going to do a, a compilation book where everything is in one book. We might. That we're still kicking around. Um, I don't like giving too many options in Kickstarters. It just muddles them down. Yeah, for sure. Um, but uh, but that's yeah. That that's to answer your question shortly. That's how the Kickstarter run. And then post Kickstarter, I believe all we're going to do are the hardcover books. We're not going to. The box that will probably be a Kickstarter exclusive All kind right, of thing. All right, folks, you heard it here. Just if you want it, that box, get on that Kickstarter. Get on that Kickstarter. Um, and, and only because we, you know, we might carry a few over for retail, but we won't carry them very long. Just because boxes get, you know, part of the reason everyone says don't do a box set because shipping with box sets is, is just a pain in the neck. 
Um, you know, you get uh, you get the liability of them getting damaged. You get the oh my god, there's a percentage of them that go and get get busted up or get damaged, and they invariably are the ones that we sent over to Germany and England <laughs> and else. And you know, now we're paying another seventy, eighty bucks just to ship another set over there, and because we do take care of our customers, pure and simple. We're, we're we're that we're that company. I mean, if you call us and say, hey, something's not right, we're going to make it right. Um, and we do have a lot of international customers, so for us, you know, a box set is uh. It's just gonna we're running through the Kickstarter. We probably won't do much of them after that. It just get it just gets too difficult and unwieldy to work with um, for distribution methods too. And we just started moving stuff over to to Amazon as one of our new things, and that's not gonna work with them. So we're definitely gonna have to stick with uh, probably just the hardcovers for post Kickstarter. All right. Well, guys, I know it's uh, getting late. I don't know if you guys have it in you, but I've I've got some uh, geek credit questions here for you, Bill. If you're up for it, I'm good. All right. Yeah. Hey, hey you! Do you have any geek credit? All right. Geek credit tonight. Uh, I tried to angle these questions towards uh, things to do with pace setter, uh, and uh, then also uh, you had told me ahead of time that uh, you know, you had that. Wealth of knowledge from the early ages of D and D and AD and D, so I've kind of, kind of got them all anchored around that sort of thing. And I, I got to say, already tonight, you, you've hit a couple things I'm going to ask, so my, my heart sank a little bit because I know I'm not going to get you, but we'll see here. Well, uh, one thing I probably should have told you is you need to shut me up because I'll just keep talking old school stuff forever. Oh so. no, I think that's what uh, what people that listen to this dig is just kind of the the wherever it goes, it goes, and they learn something new each time. So. All right, so the first question, and, and there's five questions. They're multiple choice. If you can get at least three of them correct, we can successfully say that you have earned your geek credit. So here we go. First question. Uh, so this is a slogan here. He knows your name. You don't. He knows where you are. You don't. He knows what you have done and why you must die. You don't. This is the tagline to what Paysetter Project? Wabbit Wham page? Time Masters, Whom the Gods Destroys, the Sandman RPG, or Star Ace? So yeah, Wabbit Wham page, Time Master, Whom the Gods Destroys, Sandman, or Star Ace? I'm going to go with this Time Master one. I don't think that was on Sandman. Oh, oh it, it was. It's actually the tagline for Sandman. All right. For, is it really? It is, yeah. When you mentioned Sandman known. ahead, yeah. I was like, man, I found I mean, the most I, obscure product they made, and he still game, knows it. But I just, yeah, it fits everything with with what that game was supposed to be. It just didn't ring a bell with me with it for some reason. Uh, no big deal. You, you got right. four more. Here we go. All right. Number two. Which pace setter game system had a supplement that required them to purchase a commercial IP license? So they made one game that they actually had to go buy an intellectual property uh, license to produce. Which game uh, had a, a supplement that, that they had to go do that for? Was it Star Ace, Chill, Time Masters, or Wabbit Wham Page? Yeah. I'm going to say Chill. You're right. Do you know which one it was? Dracula? Nope. That was public domain. This is Elvira. She's got a Elvira oh, right, Presents yeah. uh, Chill yep. game. Yeah. Yep. All right, you got one so point. She was, she's technically part of a vampire. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's true. 
number three. A sinister con artist is passing off fakes of an original D&D, or I'm sorry, of original D&D and AD&D modules at the vendor table at a con. Your job is to pick out which one of his items is an obvious fake. Here are his items. He's got a copy of Deities and Demigods with a message thanking Chaosium, but no inclusion of Cthulhu. He's got a monochromatic first print of Keep on the Borderlands. He's got a green copy of Silver Princess, B3, uh, uh, Palace of the Silver Princess, that is, uh, that also has a, a uh, writing credit given to Tom Moldway. And then he also has a uh, LJN toy version of Tiamat. This one's a bit tough. I apologize for it ahead of time here. So, which... No, the monochrome... The, did you say the B2? The B2? B2 monochrome? monochrome, yeah. No, it's not. They never... Excellent. It was actually on a on an advertisement they have a monochrome version of it, but they never actually produced you it. You nailed it, brother. All right. He's got two points. One more makes, uh, makes it uh, a solid win here. Uh, number four in the questions... The D&D cartoon featured a cavalier, a ranger, a thief, a barbarian, a wizard. They called him a magician, but he was a wizard. And an acrobat. Okay, cavalier, ranger, thief, barbarian, wizard, acrobat. If they were all real characters in D&D, and they were trying to reach level 2, who would need the most experience points? And I'm going to narrow it down to just four of them here. Who would need the most experience points? Would it be the wizard, the ranger, the barbarian, or the acrobat? And I will warn you, this is a trick question. That's an awesome question. Who would need the most to get to level two? Wizard, ranger, barbarian, or acrobat? Needs the most experience. Yeah, to get to level two. Wizard, ranger, barbarian, acrobat. Trick question. He's giving you that ahead of time. Well, I'm fuzzy on my thief acrobat rolls, so that's what you're going I'm with. Gonna, I'm gonna go with that. Are you sure? Are you positive? Yeah. <laughs> All right, that's the winner right there. Yeah, because acrobat was actually like kind of almost like a prestige class. You had to get to level five of thief didn't you have to get, yeah, before you, you could become one. Four five before you could become an yeah. acrobat thief, right? Man, yeah. Didn't didn't trip you up? You got your credit, but just just to take it home here, fifth question. And I think the barbarian would be the be the next one. Absolutely by the way. correct. Sure his experience charts were horrible. Yeah, six thousand and one to become second level now. Yeah, but so many hit points. <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> and the rage like you've never seen. Uh, okay, uh, fifth question. Uh, we talked about him earlier in the podcast. Uh, the late Jim Holloway's art is a big part of the first few products of Chill. Uh, his art is prolific throughout the RPG industry. Which of the following games never used Jim Holloway art? So I'm going to name a couple different games out there in RPG land. Which one never used his art? We've got Tales of the Floating Vagabond, Battletech, Rifts, and Paranoia. Tales of the Floating Vagabond, Battletech, Rifts, or Paranoia? Which one never used Jim Holloway? Uh, I can tell you what. I know next. I, I know next to nothing about Rifts. Believe it or not, and I'm not sure what Tales of the Vagabond is. That was a uh, flying oh. buffalo Avalon Hill game. Was it? Really? Yeah, it's wow. uh, the cover. The cover of the rule set is like every pulp character you could ever imagine at a bar having a bar fight. Like nice. Yeah, it's wonderful. It sounds like something I need. Um, 
Well, I'm pretty sure he illustrated for Battletech, and I know for sure he illustrated for Paranoia. Um, so it's one of the other two. And riffs or tails? 50-50. God. It sounds like he would illustrate something in Tails, so I'm going to go with Riffs. You're absolutely right. Yeah, he did the cover of Tails. Like I said, I think it's got like 50 different, like Humphrey Bogart, Indiana Jones, like when, uh, well, when you three said stages. It was a bunch of different character yeah. things. Yeah, when you said a bunch of different character things in it. Oh, you know what? Now I can picture that cover in my head. I know exactly what that is. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I know I've seen it. All right. Good that, job, that just, man. You, you, you gave me a tip off of that one. <laughs> that one may not. Well, you got five or four out of five, and that gives you your geek credit tonight. Beautiful. All right, guys, I want to thank you both for being with me tonight. Uh, Edwin and Bill, man, it was awesome hanging out with you tonight and talking games. Um, Super fun. Heading into September, guys, those of you out there listening, uh, we've got uh, the, the great Levi Combs coming in to talk about some of the projects he's on, and we're going to talk, uh, I think, Arduin uh, Grimoire is what we're talking about with him. Uh, so, oh, that's I don't know if Please. either of you guys know much about that or interested in it, but uh, you're welcome to come back and shoot the bull with us. Uh, otherwise, <laughs> it's been a heck of a night, and uh, I really appreciate you staying up this late to record this. Oh, no worries. Fantastic. Yeah, thanks for having me on. It's great fun. All right, everybody out there, uh, have have a great uh, couple weeks till we talk to you next. Uh, enjoy your games and enjoy your lives. Tonight's episode of This Old Dungeon is copyright 2021. We'd like to thank our special guests and remind you, the listener, that the views expressed and the opinions held are simply our own. Hey, we're here to entertain, not educate. Until next time, happy gaming.